Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing good, but I guess I'm, I'm feeling kind of weirdly uh, wistful. There's, there's kind of like a last day of school uh, feeling to this recording. Well, I guess last day of school is often a good thing, but I, I always like, associate it as a good thing. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, like uh, maybe, you know what? Last day of camp. But I guess sure, I picked last, school, last day of school because it's not going to be a year. So this is, but it's kind of this last day of camp feeling because you and I are about to record. It's probably going to be a very long episode, yeah. but then we're not going to do an episode together for like six weeks. Uh, yeah. You're, you're going out of town. And then when you come back, I'm going to be off, uh, for, um, uh, a week. And then, uh, um, I'm going to be out of town. And then I, and then I, yeah, then well, then there's two, like an episode that you're not on, then you're going to be out of town. Right. And so, um, it's weird. It's so crazy to think we're doing today our 2021 wrap up, right? Yeah. And the next episode you got and I are going to record together is going to be the summer movie preview. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy thing. And here's what here's what's crazy about it. What I'm about to say is the kind of thing people say as jokes. I'm going to be on safari. Yeah. That's not a joke. Jen and I are going to South Africa and Botswana. And uh, we're going to go on a safari. Oh. Um, I don't know if you so, know, because you don't listen to the podcast, which is not a judgment. I don't listen correct. to this podcast either. But whenever you're not on, I always say Tyler Smith is on assignment. Yes, that I, I think, do know. Yes. I think I'm going to say Tyler Smith is on safari. Yes, absolutely. But we, we should say there is one episode. Like, So let me do the count here. Um, two, three. So there's going to be three episodes that's going to be without, without you. Yeah. And then one episode that's you without me. That's right. And then two more. That's me without you. I'm, I might make a, a cameo for one of those, even though I will have nothing to contribute. Yeah. At all. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So maybe we'll talk uh, maybe. at the end of, um, uh, of April, but if not, it won't be until mid May that we do an episode. together. Yeah. So we, it's a weird like scheduling thing, but this is a, um, we're getting older and there are, uh, things that, get in the way you know yeah. when you get old you go on safari it's what happens but I mean, uh, you're, you're you're gonna miss two or three episodes because of the safari there's like right oh, yes, there's, there's, there's other a bunch stuff of other, going on we have yeah. obligations we're old yeah old men now um, uh it's not like when we first started the show when like we were both uh i think i was technically unemployed or was i no was i working at the arc i think you were still at the arc light and i was still at blockbuster yeah i was working so we were both like <laughs> yeah, r.i.p we for everything yeah both uh, working part-time jobs at uh chains that don't exist anymore yeah and we could like get together on a we could just schedule it on anything you know now yeah. we have uh you know careers and wives you have kids we have other yeah. obligations and um i've got a big change coming up going on right now in my Indeed, life actually yes, yes. I'm not really talking about but um it's a it's a busy exciting time so uh sorry to say you won't hear uh, us for a while um unless of I, course you felt like subscribing to the patreon in which case that's going to continue unabated that's true. yes you yeah yeah if you if you go to patreon.com slash battleship pretension what if this was all <laughs> we were like starving the listeners of exactly. the podcast to drive them to the the patreon yeah uh the patreon will still have have both of us um yeah. and but i know some many people 
have loved to tell me, um, even though sometimes I don't know if I'm, if it hurts my feelings a little bit that they prefer the movie journal to the <laughs> regular episode. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm so, aware of that, that people have said that yes. and they've said it to me as well. Yeah. So there are, so those people might be listening going like, does that mean we're not getting the movie journal until mid May? It's possible. Or it's possible. You, we might have a movie journal in another form uh, between now and then we'll see how things yeah. go. There might just, a movie journal might just like, show up in your feed um and exactly we'll, and we'll see but it probably won't be both of us uh yeah all right well that that announcement is out of the way indeed uh let's pay some bills indeed uh so we mentioned it last week but uh you know it's uh, time grows short with the oscars just around the corner now is the perfect time to introduce you to fantasy oscars uh a few years ago battleship retention listener gus in dc went looking for a fun free oscar ballot game and he couldn't find one so he made one Fantasy Oscars is an easy-to-use ballot prediction game with a lot of personality and some great extras. You can choose a classic movie avatar and even use the app in a Spanish-language mode. I appreciate that, actually. As someone who is trying to, because our 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 kids are uh, Mexican and we're trying, and you know, they encourage you to like embrace the the culture of your children. Um, and so, you know, we have like multilingual books that are at this point way more for us than for them as far as learning uh different words and stuff so i always appreciate when something is in a is in a spanish language uh, uh, mode as well um anyway moving on sorry uh gus is so excited to share fantasy oscars for the first time with battleship pretension listeners once you've signed in you can create your own league invite your friends and family to get your ballots scored against each other there is a special league set up for listeners just visit fantasyoscars.co slash bp to join that's fantasyoscars.co slash bp uh fantasy oscars has been a great addition to gus's oscar festivities every year and he hopes you'll have as much fun with it as his family has so he'll see you all at fantasyoscars.co slash bp and i will say that you know it's it's it appears to be a situation where you're predicting like what's going to win this year i would say could be a, a, a more eventful year than in the past because i don't know what the hell's going on all right. Uh, fucking guilds are going all over the place. I was I was poised to uh, to run away with uh, with our uh, fantasy awards draft. And then suddenly everything stalled out because uh, BAFTAs and all these other uh, stuff started embracing Coda out of out of the blue. And so it's uh, it's a weird it's a weird thing. But uh, but yeah, you can you can get involved in the fun, in that kind of fun at uh, yeah. fantasyoscars.co slash BP. Thank you so much, Gus, for sponsoring the show. A uh, couple things, because I have to call you out on it every time. The draft is just the one-time event. Yes. You have a tendency to use the word draft to refer to I the use entire it for the season. Whole thing. For, some yes. reason, for some reason, it really sticks in my craw. It's a fantasy well, award season. Fantasy sure. award season. The draft is the one thing at the beginning fantasy of Fantasy award it. season. You yes, wouldn't, okay. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's... Uh, 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 I don't know why that bothers me. I guess I'll tell you why it bothers me, and this is probably completely wrong is that i'm always imagining like a first-time listener okay and you saying fantasy oscar draft or, or fantasy awards draft like i worry that like they don't know what that means even though it's probably pretty self-explanatory uh, sure so i'm condescending to this uh, imaginary first-time listener uh, other thing i wanted to ask is uh how's your spanish coming along como es espanol okay <laughs> no um 
No, it's doing okay. It's it's the kind of thing where we're not necessarily learning like entire phrases, but we're learning like, you know, uh, s- some stuff like here, uh, ojos for eyes and nariz yeah. for nose and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're not to a, a, like full phrases yet. But uh, and then there are some because I took three years of Spanish, and as I discovered when we visited uh, Bogota, Colombia, it's like oh, it's still in there. It's still bouncing around in there a lot more than I would have thought. It just needs, you just need to kind of immerse yourself in it. And so there are some books that are much more complex and we'll be getting to those probably within the next year or two. Well, I uh, like uh, apparently a lot of Americans, I use Duolingo. Sure. Uh, it's, it's so me Duolingo todos, man, todos los mañanas uh, cuando caminando con mi perro. Oh yes, okay. I've got I got a lot of that. <laughs> so that's what I'm tomorrow morning when you're walking morning. with your dog, yes. <laughs> I said I do my duolingo every morning. I said todas todas las mañanas. Got it. Uh yeah, cuando caminando con mi perro. I'm walking yes. with my dog because I don't know what the actual Spanish language phrase is for walking your dog. So I sure. said walking with my dog because I yeah. don't know. Anyway, yeah, and I equals. probably fucked that up. So Spanish speakers, espano hablante, gente, let me know. All right. Uh, <laughs> I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, Tyler, I was listening to the um album uh don't uh, geo gotti g-e-o-g-a-d-d-i by boards of canada which is uh 20 years old this year came out in 2002 and now it's 2022 so um you and i were in college 20 years ago things that we listened to in college things that were on regular rotation at the video store i worked at in on 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 belmont in chicago are now 20 years old they're old man music now yes (laughs) Um, yeah so uh anyway i was listening to boards of canada being getting all nostalgic uh and uh, it sounded great at my tweaked audio.com earbuds they're uh available uh what is what do i say here um they sounded great they're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com uh, yeah, stylish said, styles and colorful I, colors. I feel like you I just, said that already. You may have already. Yeah, um, they're real little low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. We're back, and it is finally time. Yes, to wrap up 2021. This is this is the problem with us, like pegging this episode to like it always drops the weekend before the Oscars. Yeah, or in this case, less than a week before the Oscars because of scheduling issues. Yeah. Um, but the pro- like the two years in a row, the Oscars are too damn late. 
Yeah. You know, um, I feel like I, uh, as we may hear in an upcoming movie journal, whenever I decide to talk about these movies, I watch stuff that I was like, what am I doing? Cause I was still in this mode of like seeing 2021 stuff that I hadn't. And I watched yeah. stuff that I was like, this had no chance of, <laughs> <laughs> but I had, I just, just, I, I, I can't like, I cannot switch into 20 full on, full on 2022 mode unless it's like something I'm reviewing or whatever until we record this episode. Um, and this is why I feel like just market every year. The Oscars should be the last Sunday in February. That's, yes. that's perfect for me. Last Sunday in February. That's all the time I need. And you know what? I totally understand both when I could, was able to see more movies and now I totally understand that feeling like, well, I should watch this 2020. It's a 2021 movie. So it's contributing. It's like, well, officially, yes, but you're not, we're not doing an overview of the whole year. And, yeah. the, and yes, there are some movies you're like, you just know ahead of time that unless there is a fucking miracle, this movie's nowhere near my top 10. But then, but then thankfully, because we have our overrated, underrated and worst, it's like, yeah, could be the worst. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, so we could, uh, you never know. There are, there are a couple movies that I've watched, not necessarily thinking that they'll be the worst, but knowing that there's a good chance they'll be in the running. Um, and, uh, because I like the idea when my worst is something that people, I like my worst to be kind of obscure. Yeah. We, uh, well, you know what, let's just, let's get into it. Shall we? All right. Um, I think I will start because I'm, I know. I, with 99.99% certainty that you have not seen my number one. Cause I don't think you've had the opportunity to. Okay. Um, I'm a, have I seen your number one movie of the year? Yes. Okay. So I will start that way. We'll end with one okay. we've all seen. So yeah. Um, I had a problem this year where my actual least favorite movie of the year is so obscure that I'm not even going to like sure. bother. It's like, why even it feels like bullying to bring, even bring up this, yeah. uh, this, this piece of shit. Um, so I am going to bring up another movie that I think is a piece of shit. Um, and uh, I got to go worst movie of the year for me. I got to go with Scott Cooper's antlers. He must really, guy, I did not know you liked stopped. it that poorly. Okay. That, that, uh, that little, but I, th- I think it was because I like a lot of people. I liked crazy heart. Yeah. And I didn't see uh, out of the furnace. Um, Neither but, of us really liked uh, he did black mass, right? Yeah, I, that's right. I didn't like Black Mass. Actually, I, yeah, I, I a little bit maybe hated Black Mass. I maybe even more hated Hostels. Right. And so Antlers, I think, is like, it is a very bad movie. But I also feel like it's, this guy's a runaway train. And like, I need to, <laughs> I need to do my part sure. to, to slow down uh, his, his uh, uh, path of destruction. Um, because, and I, I feel like uh, worst for me means something like it's not the worst made movie of the year. That's often the thing with Scott. Like Hostels, like Antlers, is often a very like, if not not too thoughtfully, but a, a nicely composed sure. movie. There's a um, you know he knows about composition and 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 stuff like that. But uh, it it has to do with the. Uh, the attitude of, of his movies increasingly of how in it's in a similar way to something like don't look up. He's so sure that he's making something profound. Yeah. And, and it, uh, uh, it offended me more with hostels, I think because hostels was 
um, I, I, you know, it's a white guy making a movie about, uh, uh, that's attempting to reckon with the, uh, violence between, uh, white, uh, sellers sure. and native Americans. Um, but in a way that feels very, uh, pompous, uh, antlers yeah. isn't quite that, but it still does seem to have this, like, it's a horror movie about like, a Wendigo. So it's got the native American, uh, okay. thing again, but it's also about like the opioid crisis and, uh, generational trauma and, and abuse. And it just throws all this stuff in, in a way that's so, self-satisfied and I, it reminded me of look i didn't really like i like him night Shyamalan. i didn't really like the village and i definitely yeah. didn't like the end of the village when it seems to be like making a big point or whatever yeah but like the village is spielberg compared to antlers because antlers is like an m night Shyamalan movie with none of the things that are fun about m night Shyamalan movies it's just yeah. uh dour but superficial and often insulting um oh yeah it talks about alcoholism i forgot about that of course um which you know because there are so many shots of carrie russell like at a grocery store staring at a liquor bottle <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> which i like went back and read my review and i made this point then like i don't want to sound like i'm belittling the struggle of someone who is trying to stay sober right. but it becomes funny that it just keeps returning to these shots of her long shots of her staring uh at, at liquor bottles it, it uh, because and, and it's annoying because it, again it feels like scott cooper thinks he's saying something uh, uh heavy with it but it's it's all so superficial anytime i hear about a filmmaker and movie could be good it could be bad it's usually bad but a filmmaker who's just like jam packing all of this stuff into one movie. My thought is always like, do you think this is going to be your last movie? <laughs> like, uh, and no one's going to allow you to make another movie. Now in this case, maybe it's a good thing, but like, you, you don't have to tackle everything, buddy. <laughs> you, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it also, I, I've been thinking about this lately. Um, you know, I don't have, cause I think I use the, I, I use the term with uh, my, my uh, students where I referred to a, a movie as serious and there's nothing wrong with a serious movie. A self-serious movie yeah. is very different. And it yeah. sounds like that is because I didn't dislike mass uh, uh, black mass black as mass. much as you. I think that it has a couple of really good scenes, but by and large, it just, it just has this portentous, feeling it feels like he, he like he thinks he's really doing something yeah. Uh, yeah like everything it feels like he's saying you guys like come on you guys you i really need you to pay attention here um yeah boy um, I, wow I, I didn't expect you to say antlers because i knew you didn't like it but i didn't know it was that uh that profound uh and also is it, i i i'm a big generally with some exceptions generally a big fan of guillermo del toro as a director yeah as a producer though like i feel like that guillermo del toro presents doesn't mean much <laughs> to me you know like uh because i didn't yeah. like the scary stories to tell in the dark uh movie um it had its pretty, moments pretty much at all i didn't see the strain that that fx series you remember that that horror oh, series yeah. i seem to recall that not being very well received yeah but uh yeah, I guess I just like him when he makes his own movies for the most part. He, unless he produced, he produced the orphanage, I think. Right. Oh, did um, he? That long? And ago? I think, 
And I think, okay. Now that's a good movie. And J.A. Bayona directed it. Um, yeah. But uh, okay. So my least favorite film is not nearly as self-serious as yours. Um, but that didn't stop me from hating it. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know what? I got to say, Mortal Kombat, you just barely missed out on being my least favorite movie. Oh, it sounds like you were saved. Mortal Kombat was saved. Was by... saved by Jolt, uh, <laughs> right. directed by Tanya Wexler. <laughs> boy, oh boy! And you know, like I was looking at, I was looking at people's, you know, letterboxed ratings and stuff. And it's not a well-rated film, but it's a lot of like two and a half star, two star kind of things. Um, and one person, one person wrote, uh, imagine risking your life for Jai Courtney, um, which I thought was funny in itself. Um, I can't, I clearly, there's just every once in a while, there's movies like, I hate this so much and I'm alone. Nobody's saying it's great. And very few people are even saying it's good, but I had like, it was the first time it was the first time when I remembered Roger Ebert's review of North where the, where he said, I hated, hated, hated this movie. And I'd read that review. And I remember thinking like, you know, it's not a good movie, but like, this feels like an overreaction. And then I saw Joel. I'm like, no, I just, I want to say no to this movie (laughs) because it's so, you know, it's not, it's not self-serious, but it is so convinced of its own cleverness. Uh, And meanwhile, it's just so derivative of much better movies. I thought we were done with like, like Tarantino esque uh, uh, schlock. Um, meanwhile, on, on either side of Mortal Kombat this year, uh, for me, you've got Jolt on one side and you have American Knight on the other. The two movies stylistically and as far as their sensibilities could make for a, a wonderful and horrible double feature of like this, like pop culture and this very, you know, hipster type dialogue in the midst of ultra violence. And it just like, I just have no patience for it. Um, and I couldn't even enjoy Jolt just as like a, just a goofy entry into a very specific type of subgenre, which is to say like Tarantino ripoffs. Um, obviously the worst of those remains boondock saints, but Jolt is really in the running, but I feel like it's specifically points off because it's so, it was so far removed from Pulp Fiction, because this isn't trying to be modern. It's not trying to rip off modern uh, Tarantino. It's going all the way back to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and trying to do that. And and it also wastes, I think, a pretty good cast. Um, and it's just such a, it's so dumb, but really thinks it's doing something not important, but doing something novel and clever. And uh, whew, I just hate it so much so much all right well now we move on uh continuing the negativity for a little bit longer then we get into positivity um overrated film of the year now uh this there is a philosophical thing that we have to bring up here about this category which is are we talking about among our listeners are we talking about at large i try to keep it i'm thinking about posterity i'm i'm going at large so this is not going to 
my pick is not going to be controversial. I don't think okay. certainly not with you, Tyler, and probably not with most of our listeners, Sure, but the most overrated movie of 2021 for me is Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Okay. Uh, be, and this is uh, not, I'm being very like literal about it. It's overrated. Like it is, it's, it's getting awards and it's getting, right. Uh, uh, awards discussion and, and there are people it's not, I am baffled by the, the love for Belfast. I really like, I think when there's something, when there are other movies that I think are bad, that are getting a lot of awards attention, I usually still at least understand, you know, like what people see in a green book or whatever. Um, again, I don't want to sound like I'm, I've, my head has been like completely poisoned by film Twitter. Like, um, okay. like it feels like I have to say, if I'm comparing a bad awards favorite to green book, I have to say, I'm not saying Belfast is racist. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Cause there's been a lot of discussion. I liked Coda, but there's been a lot of discussion about like comparing, Oh, if Coda wins, it'll be green book all over again. A lot of people are saying like, well, it mean, if you mean a movie you don't like winning. Yes. Sure. But green book people don't like green book for deeper reasons than just it's a corny movie. So anyway, in any case, what I'm saying is I understand what people liked about Belfast or sorry, what people liked about green book. Um, and I understand what people liked about Coda because I liked Coda. Um, but, uh, Belfast, I really don't, it feels like such a, like faded carbon copy of a real movie. Mm-hmm. in so many ways it, 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 it and it's especially coming from someone however you feel about kenneth Branagh, like he can direct he is directing oh, yeah. like not all like not all of his movies have this this flatness that belfast has um and i mean that both in especially in the way it looks that i, I don't like the way belfast uh, looks uh, at all. It looks most of the movie looks like a TV commercial, hmm. um, but also, I mean, flatness in terms of the shallowness of of the of the characterizations for me, and and um, the little uh, moppet who's in the lead role is like not he's no Haley Joel Osment or whatever the standard right. is for. Um, he's cute enough, but he, like he's. The, the the whole thing and i wonder if it's just the thing of him being too close to it because it's uh autobiographical that the whole thing feels uh overly steered it doesn't feel like you know um i was thinking about this in relation to a great movie one of the first great movies of 2022 uh adrian lines Deepwater. Sure. and i was thinking about um what I like about Adrian line and what I like about great directors in general, that in a, in a great movie, it never feels like you're like the director of the movie is aiming for an emotion. It feels like the director of the movie is discovering an emotion, finding an emotion that's already there, even though that's not like movies are manufactured, like technically they are, creating these emotions but when it's done right it feels like they're just finding things and no moment in belfast has that realness to me that authenticity everything feels like it's pushing 
for uh, for for the beat for the emotion. So here we have an interesting situation because you're taking into account as far as overrated and underrated, like the general sense. Yes. And I think over the years I've gone the other way and I'm thinking in terms of our group, you know, and, and, okay. and people of our ilk. So you're doing what, what Scott did when he picked malignant. Yes. Yeah. So here's the thing with that in mind, my underrated is Belfast because <laughs> you're even, ahead of yourself. I, I know I haven't gotten to your overrated yet. I know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I'll get to Belfast in a moment because as you, as you know, it's not a movie I like that much, <laughs> uh, but I also don't hate it as much as, as some people uh, more than anything. I just feel like, I agree with you. It's, it's, and, and honestly, a lot of what you just said, it's like, yeah, what, what am I defending? It's like, well, I'm not defending very hard yeah. uh, because my overrated is many, many, many spots ahead of my underrated, which is Belfast. Uh, but this is, this also comes from the fact that like, I didn't, there weren't a lot of candidates for underrated for me. Okay. Um, and I, I don't mean, mean overrated. Uh, yes, yes. Or under it. I'm sorry, because you, you either you, one. You, I know I'm jumping back. The, and forth. Uh, the time I know, but we're I talking. Which one you're talking about? It's it's. I don't think it's ever happened before that we have the same movie, but for these different, yeah, these very different I'm categories sure, sure. because of how we're approaching it. Yeah. I think Belfast is fine. It sure as hell isn't Roma, and I think it. I think it's kind of trying to be uh, at the very least in the marketing. Um, the marketing, but like, sure, yeah. but it's also. It is at best fine. Um, I feel like you can just watch. You could just watch it and be like, "Oh yeah, all right." And the th I think the problem is just like I don't know if this material warrants. Oh, all right. You know what I mean? It feels like it should have so much more strength to it, so much more power yeah. to it. But I think it's all right. Like, I think the performances are good, even though okay. I think the parents are way too uh, idealized. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's oh, not. If a, you think it, the parents are way too idealized, wait till you get to the grandparents. Oh, of course. But you <laughs> that, know what? But that's even that, worse to me. That I'm actually more okay with because it's just the way grandparents are in people's minds. But like the way that his parents are just the, the epitome of like tolerance in this in the middle of this really intolerant time like that just feels so perfect to me it's like so there's no there's no flaw with his family at all so but but i still like i think kieran hines is all is great he's like makes a really good grandpa uh so it's like there are elements that i feel i feel about belfast much the way i do about jojo rabbit which is like i watch it and i think like although jojo rabbit has problematic stuff but like i watch i'm like yeah there's stuff i enjoy about it um, I just don't, I don't passionately dislike it. Like a lot of people in our circles do, but like I said, it's in my letterbox, you know, five rows across, uh, five movies across for every row. It's many rows below my overrated. Um, yeah. So now I, we will get to my overrated. I think I do. Obviously, I do very strongly dislike Belfast. I think with Jojo yeah. Rabbit, I had the thing like, look, I've got receipts. You can go to my Twitter timeline and see when I saw Jojo Rabbit at TIFF. Yeah. I did not like it yeah. from the jump. But I do think I became more 
angry about Jojo Rabbit, the more pe- other some people sure. w- liked it. And I, I, I try not to do yeah. that, but, um, but there are things about Taika Waititi gen- in general that I do like, and those mm-hmm. things are in Jojo Rabbit, so I should... But I think it's gotten to a, it got to a point very quickly in the months and years since Jojo Rabbit came out that when I think about it, I only think about the stuff that I hate about it. Uh, and that's probably not fair. But um, yeah, and, all right. So what is your. Oh, go ahead. Well, and, and that and it's tough because the flip side of this is, you know, if I'm on Facebook, I'll see like an ad for Belfast. And I'm like, let's check out those comments. And everyone's saying like, it's the best movie I've ever seen. I'm like, oh, fuck off. Like (laughs) see more movies, you know? And that's, and so like, it's one of those things where if in, in thinking of the unwashed masses, uh, then yes, Belfast is absolutely overrated in our group of elitist snobs. It's it's underrated. Okay. So, um, and I'll say this, like freaking for a long time, up until awards season, uh, I'd say don't look up is, is rated just right. Cause critics don't really like it that much, yeah. but it just won the damn writer's guild yeah. award for yeah. original screenplay. What the hell is going on here? I don't understand. Weird I don't year. understand. It's a weird year. Anyway. Uh, so what my, is your overrated? My overrated is West side story. Oh, um, because yeah. And, and I think I, it, this might just be, I need to see it again. Um, Cause it, I mean, it's, it's still pretty high. It, it missed out on my honorable mentions by a few slots uh, because there are mom- there are things in it that are, that are wonderful, but at the same time, speaking in terms of our, our, you know, uh, circles, so many people have put it as like their, fi- their favorite movie of 2021. And I watch them. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. And there are individual performances, individual shots, individual sequences that are, um, that are truly amazing. And I definitely feel, feel like it's the most stylistically engaged Spielberg has been in quite a while, uh, which is nice to see. But by and large, I walked out of the movie just thinking like, you know what, thinking exactly the way I, I did about, uh, about Belfast, which is, yeah, all right. Um, but it, it's one of those where like, there are so many individual parts, but the overall doesn't quite equal the sum of its parts, at least for me. So it's, it's like number, I only saw 50 movies in 2021 and it's like number 18. So that's not bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Belfast is low. It's, it's fairly low, but, uh, but yeah, my, my overrated is West side story, but I'm perfectly willing to put that on me. I think I probably like, this is one where I feel like I should watch it again because there's enough there to, for me to watch it again. Belfast. I think I got it. You know what I mean? I don't think there's going to be much to that. The movie will reveal upon a second viewing. So I, I probably shouldn't like to pick Belfast as my underrated. It was between that. Honestly, it was between that and eight bit Christmas, but I don't know anybody who was talking about eight bit Christmas. So this is where we are. Yeah. Uh, I liked West Side Story more than you did, but I also have that some of that feeling where I'm not tapped into what what other people are getting yeah. uh, out of it that much. But I also feel like maybe I should watch it again. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's streaming. So I guess um, we're on to my 
my underrated and then i guess yes. we'll skip your underrated because you already talked about it at length i i felt like i had to given the the nature of things um i think it was probably the right decision but it also would have been funny to like move on and then come back yeah, that's true <laughs> yeah. yeah we're not done yet uh, it's in right. my honorable mention somehow as well i don't know how that happened uh so my underrated film of the year this is uh and i, I guess i'm going more with mainstream critics because this movie was nominated for an oscar so i guess I'm not. I'm talking less about awards and more about mainstream critics. It's nominated for an Oscar, but it also is, it has one of the lowest Rotten Tomato scores I've ever seen. Hmm. Uh, it's Lee Daniels' The United States versus Billie Holiday. Hmm. Um, and I will uh, admit that going in in the same way that I go uh, that I, I've gotten to a point where I'm going into a Scott Cooper film knowing that I haven't liked his past films. Yeah. I go into a Lee Daniels film knowing that I do like his films, and I'm excited to see uh, what he's going to sort of uh, uh, fire hose at me out of his like uh, weird um, like uh, uh, didactic, but also like uh, artful brain. Uh, His there's, there's something about the boldness with which he uh, his movies come across that, uh, that he's, He's tackling very different subject matter, but I feel like I, I feel about Lee Daniels a similar way to the way that I feel about Lars von Trier, where, uh, I, I just, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there to see, uh, what completely uncompromised vision he has, has made. Um, and I love that this is in some ways in its, broadest shape united states versus billy holiday is a recognizable form of a biopic uh you know picking one sort of section of um, a famous person's uh life this is specifically about the um she's already famous when the movie starts it's specifically about the fbi's attempts to to sort of uh catch her on drug charges as a way of keeping her quiet on lynching and other issues um and uh which is interesting that uh the movie um has text at the end saying that like the um uh congress is you know has an anti-lynching bill uh being debated and just like a week or two ago the anti-lynching bill actually passed and was signed by the president so uh hmm. that was a weird like uh, coincidence that i happened to watch because that's not why i watched the yeah. movie i happened to watch the movie right before that happened but um I've gotten so far off track. Okay, so it ha- it's it has a form that's recognizable, but it's also in a very Lee Daniels way. It's very pretty and sultry and seductive, while also being very ugly. You know, um, there's something about you. Have, you have complained, especially uh, rightfully, about how many biopics overdo the warts and all, where they're like right. focusing on the warts as a way as a way of like seeming important. Yeah, but the United States versus Billy Holiday focuses on the warts, but in a way that is still celebrating. Like, yeah, this woman, uh, you know, she had problems. She mistreated people. She abused drugs. She, like, she was not always nice to her bandmates or whatever. But like, it it is a true warts and all in the sense of like loving every part of her, even though she, like all people, you know 
had her her flaws. Uh, and all that is happening in the midst of that Lee Daniels, uh, that ugly pretty thing that he does that I like so yeah. much. It's a great way of, of phrasing it. That like, you know, I it's, and yeah, we can't go too far down this path, but. I've encountered some people who talk about art in general and movies in particular, but uh, they talk about how like there is such a thing as objective beauty, um, which is like, Oh, I can't, I, I understand that in the sense of like the concept of symmetry or the concept of, of just like what hit, what can hit your eye a certain way. But I do think that there's a way to make, you know, I'll put quotes around ugliness, tremendously beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you think about it, so much of of alien is ugly, the creature itself, but also the Nostromo and, and the the derelict spaceship and all that. Like it's it's very it's it's ugly and gross looking and it's not a place you'd want to inhabit in life. But it but it's shot and designed in such a in such a beautiful way that I can't stop looking at it. And I do think of Lee Daniels as a, as a director who's like that. You know, when I think of something like uh, Precious. Uh, it's like, there's a lot of ugliness there in the, in the world that she lives in, but he manages to find and capture the, the beauty of it, because I think beauty can be found in anything. It just, you know, as a, going back to, to Belfast, like, you know, there are a lot of black and white movies last year. Um, and I, when you see something like Belfast, you're as like simply making something black and black and white does not immediately give it that really interesting hot you know yeah contrasty kind of depth uh and in fact his just looks pretty flat for the most part it, his, it looks like instagram filter black and white is what <laughs> uh, this is what belfast looks like yeah um but yeah so uh i, I need to see uh united states versus billy holiday because uh because uh, i think i think i need to in fact i think i probably need to see more Lee Daniels stuff. Cause there's a couple things of his that I missed, but he's someone that in retrospect, as much as I was not ready for the paper boy, when I saw it and reviewed it, cause how could anybody be ready for that? <laughs> um, but I, th I, I do think about it a lot and I feel like I probably should revisit it. Yeah. I've had that uh, experience with, uh, with movies before. Um, all right. Well, we're skipping your underrated because uh, we already talked about it. So now I'm going to go through my top five. All right. or my top five, my uh, five honorable mentions. Yeah. So I go through all five, then you go through all five of yours. There might right. be you po tell me if one of these is going to show up later because I'm right. pretty, I'm guessing at least one of them is. Sure. Uh, I'm going to start with Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. We'll get there. Okay. So next up for me is Andreas Fontana's Azor, which okay. is uh, in I guess it takes place in Argentina. I think it's a. Uh, technically like a Swiss movie, but it's about a Swiss banker in the late seventies, early eighties, um, who is, uh, is traveling to Argentina because his business partner who works out of there has gone missing and he needs to take over the affairs. He finds out his business partner was into some, uh, extra legal uh, activities. Um, but what I'm saying is not really important. The, the, the plot, this is, uh, there's been a lot of, talking about movies or songs or works of art as just being works of art as just being like a vibe. And I think Azor definitely fits into that. But to go beyond that, what I'd say is I think a movie like Azor is a better tribute to 
what has made cinema great in the past than something that is specifically about the cinema's past, like Mank or something that I didn't right. really like. Um, it, it 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 takes place, like I said, in the late seventies, early eighties. I can, can't. It's I could look it up because it like I don't think it ever says what year it takes place, but it refers to like Argentina having won the World Cup. So if I looked it up, I could like find out what sure. year they won the World Cup. But I think it's like late seventies. Anyway, um, and it feels like it's reveling in the textures of the past, specifically the cinematic textures and the way that the photographic textures, but also the 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 clothes and the and, and the locations and and the movements of the of the camera and it's it's just it's a uh, a movie that plays like a sizzle reel of a great movie which kind of like makes it a great movie in a way yeah. um anyway we can't spend too long on each of the honorable mentions but uh love days or uh next up is raisuke hamagachi's drive my car uh, I got an hour in and then life got in the way. I oh, love okay. that hour. Okay. Thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. You barely even got into the, exactly. The yeah. the you, you like only, yeah. only, only barely made it past the, open the credits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, um, uh, I almost feel like I'm trying, like I, by not putting this in my top 10, I wonder if I'm ac- accidentally feeding into some of the, like, uh, you know, backlash. There's always whenever a movie comes out of nowhere and and uh, 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 shows up at the top of people's lists and gets sure. nominated for best picture. There's always there's a backlash against every best picture nominee. Um, yes. But I, so I almost feel like I'm playing into that by not putting in my top ten. But uh, there's just I think this was a, personally this I think 2021 was a really really strong year for movies. Um, and I think Drive My Car is a masterful movie in uh it's it's uh, a, a a movie that is famously three hours long and you know we talk about things when movies are very long like why did that need to be that long and i don't i, I think that's actually like whether or not a movie needs to be its length it can be kind of a superficial like a reductive uh way of talking about a movie but if you wanted to make a case for a movie that needs to be three hours long drive my car is it because it needs to live in its main character's grieving process. Um, and, but specifically when I say grieving, I'm not just talking about, uh, you've gotten far enough into the movie to know that his right. wife dies. Yes. Uh, but you also, because it happens before that, got far enough into the movie to know that his wife was cheating on him. Yes. And he knows this. She didn't knew, know that he knew when she died. And uh, he when his wife dies, he is still grieving their, whatever their relationship was before he learned this. Yeah. And that doesn't go away because she died. So for the rest of the movie, he's working through two kinds of grief at the same time that are sometimes potentially at odds with one another, but Absolutely. he's an even killed guy and he has to, he has to give it the time to, to 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 work itself out or to do the work himself and and to and to figure out how to get through this this isn't a movie of major like tearful catharsis although there are don't worry if you get back to it either oh okay uh, there is some big emotional stuff coming but it's not in the form of 
what you think of when you think of a movie about grief. Uh, Jen, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. Jen happened to like walk into the room briefly while I was watching and sat and watched with me for a minute. And she just said like, she said, this film feels like it had something like, it feels like it has room to breathe. Um, and that's definitely something that, that I observed, which is like, it just allows in the one hour that I've seen, uh, which by the way, didn't feel like an hour. Like it's, it's not like it's an action packed movie. And yet somehow it's that one hour, like flew by. And I was angry that, that, uh, I wound up getting this work thing I had to do, but anyway, um, and so like, uh, but this idea of just letting the characters, just giving them the time to just feel what they are feeling um, instead of being like, okay, let's, we got enough. Let's move on to the next thing. You know, I think I'm sure that I'm sure there was tremendous pressure, uh, maybe even internally uh, to like, oh, you could still accomplish this in two hours. It's like, yeah, but maybe not. Maybe the, this is a different thing. Like you could tell the story in two hours, but you might not be able to capture the, the emotion that I'm only starting to get into uh, it, where I stopped. And I just found the film so invigorating. I have no doubt genuinely that if like, I like this hour more than the two hours of a lot of the movies on my list. Um, I have no doubt that if I were to, if I were to have finished it in time for this, um, I imagine it'd be in my top 10. Uh, all right. Well, moving on to speaking of movies about grief. Uh, my next honorable mention is Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2, okay. which is a movie about a uh, film student making her student thesis about her boyfriend who died. Spoilers for the souvenir part one, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you had your time. You had time, yeah. um, uh, and it's funny to say. It sounds funny to say this um, because it is a movie about someone grieving. But the souvenir two is also, I think, funnier and looser than the first one as as well, <clears throat> because like a movie that'll grace my actual top 10. Uh, it's a movie that is about the, where an artist uh, exists, positions themselves between their real life and the things that they create to process their, their real life. So she's um, in between all of these things. And it's not, it's uh, again, like, um, like I was saying about um, United States versus Billy Holiday, um, it's not it's not uh, pat or or excuse me or schematic or prescriptive or anything. It's it's a it's a it's a messy movie, but it's also made by someone because the main character is based on the filmmaker, right? But with forty years of difference in between them, so it it, it it's. It's a it's a it's messy in terms of what it's about, but it has this very sympathetic. I've been there. Distance this this uh, this this love, um, and of course, there's all sort of metatextual things about Joanna Hogg's making a movie about herself, making a movie about her real life, hmm. um, and uh, you get all the different 
layers, which is why the movie feels more expansive than the first one, because it also has multiple films within the film. She's not the only one making the film. There's like four different aspect ratios in this movie because everything uh, has its own uh, aspect ratio. Also, I would say the the main maybe the main reason this one's funny than the first one is because it has a much larger role for Richard Iowa Day. Um, mm who was who he steals his one scene in the first one and then he comes up comes back and is in the second one uh a, a bunch and um uh yeah it feels the two movies together uh as soon as i i think i said this in my review as soon as i like watched the second one i it was like i can't believe that for two years i thought of the souvenir as a standalone movie like it now, it now, now that the second one exists, how could I have, I have ever thought the first one could exist on its own? Oh, that's great. They're so of a, of a piece now. Um, and then my final honorable mention, uh, I should have, uh, remembered the director's name, uh, Julie Ducournau's Titan. Um, I'm hoping for our French speaking listeners that I got close to the correct pronunciation because I was scolded once before. Uh, but, um, Titan is not a movie about grief, but it is a movie about uh, uh, painful processes. Uh, you know, there's um, obviously, and I think um, in a very positive way, mainstream culture has been more aware of things like gender, ident- gender identity and gender dysphoria in recent years. Um, and I'm glad that I'm not here trying to talk about a movie that is the after-school special version of a movie about that. Sure. I'm talking about a, a movie, a work of body horror about a woman impregnated by a car uh, who then, um, I guess, I won't give too much away, but she ends up hiding out, pretending to be a man uh, working as a firefighter. Um, I, I like uh, this. This uh, this movie came up when Sean and I did our best needle drops of 2021, uh, and we were talking about all of these firefighter sequences. And it like it occurred to me like anyone who doesn't who just knows this as the movie about the woman who gets impregnated by a car must be like, what are they? Do- it's a movie about firefighters, <laughs> like, <laughs> but it, like the car impregnation thing is something that happens at the beginning and then informed like it is sure part of the rest of the movie, but most of it is about a woman uh, pretending to be a man and hiding out in a small town fire station. <laughs> um, but it's uh, in many ways, the most uh, probably the most uncomfortable movie that I watched of uh, I mean, the like, most uncomfortable movie I watched that I liked of sure. of of 2021 but it's also uh it could be joyful and triumphant in its own uh underhanded uh way uh, as well um i still am not going to be so privileged as to pretend that i now understand gender dysphoria because i right. watched uh titan but i'm glad that i saw this movie about it as opposed to some you know netflix documentary <laughs> yeah or right, time for oh go ahead the unfortunate uh wolf uh that i right. saw yeah and it does like even though it's 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 you know a- an allegory 
uh, it does have that after school special uh, quality to it because um, it's just so it's so earnest in all the wrong ways. Um, OK, so my starting uh, starting off my uh, uh, honorable mentions is John Watts Spider-Man No Way Home, a movie that I liked more than I thought I was going to, frankly. Um, I saw like two months after it came out. By that time, everyone's talking about how great it is. There are morons who are saying it should have been nominated for Best Picture. Um, Like, it's so interesting. Like, there lately, I've been thinking in terms of like satirical headlines. And one of them was like, man who only sees two movies a year uh angry they weren't nominated um and that's that's what things feel like increasingly to me um that said uh i was i was so pleasantly surprised by spider-man no way home because of not merely what it does but how easy it would have been to do something else like it's doing this multiverse thing there are characters from the Sam Raimi films, characters from the, I forget the name of the director of the Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, the Andrew Garf- That sounds right to me. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, who made uh, 500 Days of Summer? That's him, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so like, yeah. So bringing in characters from those, it would have, again, it would have been so easy to just let the fact of the characters being there be enough uh and just you know just poke at our nostalgia pleasure centers but it actually does something with these characters and it winds up doing things so much more meaningful than what it could have done otherwise which is like hey here's uh doc ock now let's watch him fight the spider-man we know it goes so much further than than that and creates tremendous amounts of sympathy for characters that we otherwise wouldn't have sympathy for. Uh, and it lets these characters have their own arcs within this. And again, it would have just been so easy to let this, like it would have been a home run financially. It's if it had, uh, made all these easy decisions, but it, it, it chose the more complex, uh, decisions that incidentally I think are in keeping with who Spider-Man is as a character. So I was really surprised and I, fe- and I still feel like a, a, a lot of the action sequences, man, there's just something, I think there's just something very cinematic there. I don't mean to, to zero in on Doc Ock specifically, but there is something very satisfying about the, f- the four tentacles guy fighting Spider-Man. It just like, it's one of the reasons Spider-Man two works so well. Like when they're fighting on that train and up that building, it's like, this is amazing. Um, and, uh, so oh, yeah, no, the also, Mark Webb ones are amazing. They're not, I'm sorry. Uh, don't let their name fool you. It is just a clever name. Um, okay. I saw the first, the first one. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. Cause you know, the, the, I think the two leads are, are, really good and they're just stuck in an unfortunate Andrew Garfield and Dennis Leary. Oh yeah. It's their chemistry is, Oh, <laughs> it's uh crackling. Um, okay. Next up for me is, uh, Mike Mills. Come on, come on, which also kind of surprised me, uh, part because I thought it was going in the case with a lot of these increasingly, like there are the movies 
that I thought they were going to be something and they wind up being something else. And I like how generally uncompromising come on, come on is in like the, the, the nephew character is not cute. Um, he's endearing at times, yeah. but at other times just like, this kid's, this kid's fucking weird, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and our main character, you know, is also just not, not self-absorbed, but he just, he has his own thing going. And then suddenly he has to think of this other person and the, the sheer number of times that he's like on the phone and just allows the kid to wander away. You're watching like, have you, how have you not learned this yet, man? What's going on here? But and I think the movie uh, is cognizant of, of yes, that. Cause there's, yes. I, I, I have my problems with the movie. One of my favorite lines is when Rocky Phoenix says about the kid, like he says something like he's spoiled and there's a pause and he's like, or I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. and that, as a guy who is approaching 40 and childless, I, I I think about that sometimes like uh, am I like am I just still is there a part of me that's just still a kid because I never had to have responsibility for a kid I would say probably yes uh but that's not a slam on you because I this, is, this is exactly how I how I felt that <laughs> line had a lot of resonance with me um and uh but I also like that it's not it's not treating like oh this kid is just like is so precocious and wise beyond his years and all that. Uh, and I know that one of the things that, that bothers you about the movie is like when Joaquin Phoenix is interviewing all these kids and they are saying things that he views as very wise to me, it's like I, in his mind, that's what a kid can be. And then he sees the reality of what a kid is. And it's like, mm. Oh, they're so much more complex than the sound bites that I'm requiring of them. Uh, and so I really like that it's him dealing with his own expectation, his own preconceived notions of what, childhood is versus what it, what it actually is. Um, my next film, maybe we'll be skipping it, uh, at the moment is Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza. Yeah, we can, we'll, we'll come okay. back to licorice pizza. All right. Uh, next for me is Wes Anderson's the French dispatch, um, which, you know, I'll say this, and this is something that you and I've said before, which is like, when we saw fantastic Mr. Fox, we're like, turns out that stop motion is what Wes Anderson should have been doing this whole time. And I would also say, and then he made Isle of dogs and it was like, so, yeah, oh, it turns out not. we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Roald Dahl stop motion animation yeah, really fits yeah. with what he's doing. Similarly, I would say like, yeah, the sensibilities of the New Yorker <laughs> really feel like him. Like what are his movies? If not like animated, you know, live action versions of New Yorker cartoons. Um, and uh, and the French Dispatch, there's just such a sense, you know, uh, any movie that is like a love letter to something that the that the director enjoys, uh, always runs a risk of me being like, I don't love it, and thus this is a waste of my time, um, and I don't have any feelings towards the New Yorker one way or another. But this, you know, the good ones are the ones that will make you want to engage with this thing and see what everything, you know, see what the love is about. And French dispatch is this celebration of like what the New Yorker is while also still being uniquely itself and telling these individual stories. Um, and it is often hilarious in sort of the non sequiturs, like <laughs> Tilda Swinton slideshow 
and she accidentally show like uh, a slide pulls up of her naked i believe and she just says oh and just so deadpan just explains what it is and then moves on um so yeah just moments like that and so many like really great performances and and i think maybe inspired by by his material i feel like one of his more humanistic films like really allowing his characters to to feel things even if it's you know, crunched into the, the, the mold of sort of how he writes dialogue. But I feel like he's, he allows his characters to, to feel things more than he, than he usually does. So I really, I really liked it. Um, Me too. Uh, I, uh, I feel like when I was younger, I had a problem with Wes Anderson. It turns out that it just, he wasn't being Wes Anderson enough for me. It feels like Fantastic <laughs> Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel, French Dispatch, like, when he's just like got all the burners turned on. Yes. I, I, that's what I like. Yeah. And, and of course I, I, I always go back to Royal Tenenbaums as my favorite because I feel like that is when he's really starting to like, okay, we've got characters wearing the same costume throughout. Like he's really trying to play up the idea that this is a book. So I think that's where you started to see him become what he really is now. Yeah. Um, in, 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 in a good is, way is, has supplanted, Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite. I need to rewatch it. I, I didn't love it at the time, despite loving a lot of things uh, about it, but, uh, but I feel like I should probably watch it again. Um, okay. And then my last film is a uh, Soleil Moon Fry's kid 90, a documentary about fame and gr- and growing up in general, but growing up famous and just like how dangerous turns out how dangerous that can be. Um, because as you're, as, as you're watching this footage that she has shot throughout her life since starring in Punky Brewster, uh, into adulthood and you're always like so many of her contemporaries are not around anymore. Like they didn't, they didn't make it. Uh, and it winds up being a really thoughtful, albeit I would say too short. I think it's only about 90 minutes and I feel like you, you could probably get more out of it. Um, well then I have to call it kid 100. I guess that's true. I don't know how, how, uh, she, why she decided to like really incorporate the time code into her, uh, into her movie. But, uh, but yeah, so I do think that it's, it's a very touching film that sometimes does it, you know, it incorporates like footage from the time and also interview footage of some of those people now, which might bother me, except she has, because she has a relationship with these people and they're not just like, someone like a a friend of a friend or just like someone who can speak authoritatively. Like it really feels like such a personal movie because it is uh, and all, and getting the perspective of other people who managed to survive. And I know that's so dramatic to say, but when you watch the movie, you realize it's not that dramatic to say they survived being a kid actor. Mm. Um, And, and hearing their perspective is so, is so interesting. And it just, and it gets you thinking about just the nature of show business as well. And like, really, I mean, you know, you and I love movies and and television and art in general, but you start to wonder after a while, like, you know, going back, going back to a story we've told a million times, like from the commentary of the omen, like Richard Donner was like, I'm not going to kill a goldfish Mm -hmm. for, for a scene. And then when you realize like the stuff that, actors and certainly and certainly and maybe especially kid actors are required to do you're just like man we're just making movies guys 
yeah. like and and kid 90 really is is harrowing in a lot of ways but also so full of life and, and full of energy and it's it's a, it's really great i liked it a lot you know i actually had this thought just yesterday or the day before because some tv channel was doing a weekend long say by the bell marathon okay and natalie was like watching some episodes and i thought to myself like oh it's a shame that like dustin diamond and lark lark ford he's apparently like have you know, i mean well dustin diamond has since passed away but yeah. before he's like it's a shame that like they don't seem to be doing that well but i was like or oh, maybe it's a miracle that the other four are okay yes it's yeah. it it really is uh astonishing and and when you hear like i think i mentioned this when i first saw the movie on the on the journal but like um mark paul gosler says he goes oh i don't i'm i'm not letting my kids anywhere near show business because it's like you may be a kid, but it's a grown-up business, and they expect you to be a grown-up. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's a gr- it really is a great movie. It just got bumped out of my top ten as I was like rearranging things, um, and it's worth watching. It's it's on Hulu. I think people would really enjoy it. All right, this is where we get into our actual top ten. We're gonna go back and forth. Uh, I'm gonna start with David Lowry's The Green Knight. We'll get there. Okay, what is your number ten? My number 10 is Josh Greenbaum's Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Uh, what can you even say except to just rehash jokes? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those kind of things, except that it's just, it's anytime we get into like my top 10, I, I, I wind up repeating the same thing, which is like, just there are movies that, that are just miracles to me. I'm, I'm astonished that this movie was allowed to be made, not just by the studio, but by the world that everyone's like, this is, this is fine. Let's do it because it's just, it's the kind of absurd that I feel like you don't see much anymore in, in film. I feel like you see it a lot in TV. Um, but I feel like this kind of absurdity sort of old time Adam McKay, like Anchorman, where everything is just taking place in a ridiculous over the top version of reality. Um, It's just not something you see very much. Uh, And maybe it's, maybe it's because like, it's so easy to do it wrong. And indeed there are a couple of, there are a couple of jokes in Barb and star that just don't totally work for me, but I appreciate that they tried it. There are jokes in airplane that don't work. Exactly. That's, that's just the nature of this kind of comedy. And the, and the ratio here of works to doesn't work is statistically, uh, you know, irrelevant. (laughs) The the ones that don't work because it could be an individual line, whether it be the way it's written or the way it's read, it could be an entire sequence, whatever it is. Some things like I was just laughing all the way through. And just loved every minute of it. It's just a, it's just such a wonderful, bold, and I think a very well-made comedy. Like it is so uh, over the top that you need to make sure that in the art direction, in the cinematography, and often in the editing, it needs to be like spot on because some of those jokes don't work if a shot is a split second longer than it needs to be. Um, And, uh, yeah, I this is a film that like when I first saw it, it was like in my top 20 and it just kept working its way up. And I was like, I feel like this needs to be in my top 10. Well, I'll paraphrase something that I said way back in July when I put this in my top five movies of 2021 so far. Um, you called it Josh Greenbaum's former Star Wars because that's how we tend to talk about movies in this podcast. 
but uh, this Barman Star is as much an auteurist work as anything else on our lists, but the auteurs are oh, yes. Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo. Mumolo? Yes. Mumolo. Um, so I just wanted to make that point that this feels as singular a vision as, you know, whatever else we're. Yeah. It's, it's about. like when you watch, like Harold Lloyd was never the credited director of his movies, but yeah. come on. All right, so we're on to my number nine, which is yeah. Pablo Larraín's Spencer. Didn't see it. Okay, um, I'm as with Lee Daniels and, and and some other directors. I'm just an easy mark for Pablo Larraín. His movies uh, always fascinate me. There's something about the way that you talked about editing, but the way that the the way that his movies move and the way that he uses. You know, it's one thing to say he uses like moving cameras with wide angle lenses, but we've seen that so much. It doesn't really actually capture, I think, the dreamlike or often in the case of Spencer nightmare like uh, nature of the cast, the the spell that his movies tend to to cast over me. Um, Spencer's a, a, a movie that takes place almost entirely inside the head of a woman who was undergoing a nervous breakdown. Uh, and as such, it's often a very uh, intense, uncomfortable movie. And Johnny Greenwood's score absolutely plays into that. Uh, Johnny Greenwood is one of the go-to composers right now for a reason. It's not just that he is in Radiohead. It's that he um, writes fascinating music that is so yeah. perfectly pitched to the project in, a, in every case. Uh, and and uh, I know, you know, I feel like he's about to win an Oscar for the Power of the Dog score. I don't know if you That'd be nice. Uh, you don't think so? Uh, uh, it, it, it's looking like it's going to be Dune. Uh, okay. it's been a while since Hans Zimmer has won and he has been doing very interesting work in the last 10 years, uh, with different directors, but, uh, but well, yeah, that, it, it could be, it could be power of the dog in any case. Um, sorry, Spencer. No, I asked, uh, in any case, Spencer is my favorite of the three Johnny Greenwood scores, uh, um, of 2021. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, you, you know, I, but I say that I like, I'm an easy mark for Pablo Lorraine, but it's almost like every time I step into one of his movies, like I forget a little bit and then something happens or starts to happen. And I'm like, Oh, right. Like I, I feel it come wash over me. Like, this is why, I, what I like about this dude's uh, approach to, uh, to, to film form. Uh, and there's a uh, very early on in Spencer, um she is late to whatever fucking castle they're spending christmas at i don't know uh and she's lost in the countryside she's driving herself and uh she sees a uh scarecrow in the middle of a field wearing a like a a jacket it's like a barber hunting jacket um i think and uh she gets out of the car and climbs the fence and walks all the way across this field and takes the jacket off of the scarecrow and takes it back mm. to the car and uh i was hooked from that moment on i uh, i think there's um and yeah Kristen uh, stewart is um fantastic uh i call it you know 
uh, why am I forgetting her name? I just talked about her on the individual achievements. Um, oh, was it Tilda Swinton? No. Happy Go Lucky. What's her name? Oh, Sally Hawkins. Sally Hawkins or, or Timothy Spall. They're great too, but this is this is a movie of uh, Kristen Stewart and Pablo Lorraine and their technicians uh, working together. All right, number nine for you. Uh, nine for me. Sorry, one second. Sorry, I'm sending a, a kid-related text. Um, <laughs> is it uh, cute? Like, are you saying a cute? No, it's just like... Picture? Hey, it's 75 in the kids' room. It's not, it's not that cute. Um, 75, uh, I guess, is kind of a cute temperature. Um, no, all right. I so, no, I guess not. To the degree that any temperature can be cute, I feel like 75 is not, not doing it. Um, okay. So, my number nine is Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, um, a movie that, like, his previous uh, Crimson Peak uh, is is filmed from, I think it was 2015 Crimson Peak. You know, it's just his love letter to this earlier style of filmmaking. And, you know, that was very much his, his hammer horror movie. And this is his uh, film noir. Uh, and in both cases, he just put so much money. I, I hate to put it that way, but like, just is really, you can see it all up on the screen. Like just, it is lavish uh, when he decides he wants to really, uh, really play up the the world that he is creating, and he always creates, you know, an, an alternate world. But for some reason, Nightmare Alley, and I, I talked about with individual achievement. I talked about the the cinematography, um, but obviously, it's the production design, costume design. He is just putting you inside this world that, even in the heightened world of film noir, uh, is particularly otherworldly uh it seems almost surreal uh not merely because you know you're walking through a carnival and you're seeing these strange sights and hearing these strange sounds but even when you're in the middle of like this beautiful psychiatrist office you know um everything is just so meticulously created in a way that it that I had a hard time embracing at first because we're dealing with a world of, of scumbags uh, and well, maybe not scumbags, but at the very least, you know, liars and uh, tricksters some, and that some sort of, them of thing. Are scumbags. Some of them are, yes, very much scumbags. Um, uh, maybe that's too, I'll say low lives, but, uh, but yeah. And so like you're like, I'd say Willem Dafoe is a bit of a low life. Do you think so? Yeah. Oh, I mean, Willem Dafoe's character is awful. He's an awful yeah, person. Yeah. He's a, a, a monster. Yeah. Um, but I'm just shaking my head because I'm realizing when I filled out my BP's ballot, mm -hmm. Tim Blake Nelson for the McGill. I, I, Why did I not think to I know. nominate Tim Blake Nelson for the Bruce McGill Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes of Screen Time? He's pretty, he's pretty great in it, and he shows up at a very important moment uh, of the film. Um, but yeah, and so, and he, yeah, and he, he plays a good scumbag as well. Um, and, and plays uh, nobility quite well as well. Uh, uh, old Henry was my number 16 of the year. So mm. just barely missed uh, my honorable mentions, but um, I was, anyway. was kind of hoping it would pop up in the, uh, today. Spider-Man surprisingly edged it out. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah. And so like, it's just this 
so I, I did have I did have a, a hard time embracing the level of beauty that Nightmare Alley displays. But then when you realize that a big part of all of of all these characters lives is artifice, is presenting a, a beautiful and trustworthy facade that is like, OK, yeah, they would even in the carnival, like trying the everything needs to look put together and controlled uh, nothing left to chance. They actually, even though they, the, the characters themselves are gritty and their actions are, could be considered like gritty and untrustworthy. Like everything about their presentation is the opposite of that. And so the film really embraces that and you do, and, and the films like long runtime, it just allows the story to unfold and, the, and actually the longer it is, the more dread builds as you realize, like, we are not headed towards a good place. And, and there's this feeling of fate, you know, which obviously is a big part of, of the, the mentalism as well. Like talking about where someone's going to end up or, or uh, the fate of someone that has passed away, whatever it is. And so this, I, this feeling of inevitability, like this cannot end well and that feeling of dread like there's no of course you and i know film noir that it's just the nature of it like there's no winning here uh but and and certainly having not read the original novel or seen the original film i it took like this is me being a a snobbish but also savvy moviegoer I kind of saw what the end was going to be pretty early. Uh, and then Tim Blake Nelson shows up and there are some people in my theater. And this is where I act like a, uh, an asshole. I don't act like an asshole, but just to, to us, to us. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, something you were saying, I don't act like an asshole. I am an asshole. I am an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. All these, <laughs> all these amateurs are out there uh, putting on airs. Um, but no, it's uh you know, Tim Blake Nelson shows up and says a very specific phrase and the people in the audience, some people in my audience were like, Oh, and I was like, wait, not until now, <laughs> right now. And, uh, but that's, but that's the thing is just part of it is like with this film, if you're, if you're a savvy movie, go movie goer, and you're familiar with the genre, you know, that like, there's going to be a lot of foreshadowing and you know, that we're going to end up in a maybe not as bad a place as we did, but it's going to end horribly. Uh, and just the films, I feel like Del Toro has such a command of tone and brings all of the style together so that you just feel like you are being that you're in good hands, but the hands are taking you to a place not good at all. Um, and it's, and yet the film was so enjoyable for me. I really loved it. Um, all right. Um, Next up for me is I have to look up how to say the uh, I don't know how to say the director's name, but uh, Alexandra Kobaridze's "What Do We See When We Look at the Sky," a film okay. from the country of Georgia. Um, that is a, a movie about two people who fall in love at first sight and then are some sort of curse befalls them where they wake up the next morning looking different, and so they never exchange information. They can't find each other. They spend the rest of the movie sort of uh, hoping to find one another again but meanwhile they go about getting uh like getting small menial jobs to pass the time um meanwhile the movie goes off in occasional uh flights of fancy where a narrator will talk about the 
World Cup. This is the second time in this episode I've talked about the World Cup <laughs> of soccer. Um, and uh, this whole narrative about, um, and I'm forgetting the name of the Tbilisi. Is that the, I can't, it's a I, bad at city names in Georgia, but uh, uh there's a whole thing about like, here are the most like popular public places to gather, to watch soccer games. And then like, he starts like talking about stray dogs and gives the stray dogs individual names and say, this dog likes to watch soccer at this bar. And this <laughs> dog, uh, it's funny, but it's also very sad, bittersweet because it's about two people trying to find this, the person they, they love, but it's one of a number of movies this year that I feel like, do a for me at least everyone's experience is different but for me do a very good job of speaking to what it is to be alive right now Hmm. um i mean outside of covid which although there are plenty you know uh there are a couple of movies this year that um incorporated the pandemic in uh in meaningful ways but what what do we see when we look at the sky is a movie that's about whether it's searching for romance or, or love or whether it's finding a place to watch a soccer game and have a few beers with your friends or fellow stray dogs, if that's what you are. Uh, it's a movie about the things that we do day to day to keep ourselves from losing it at the thought of how terrible things are. You know, there. Uh, and this is what do we see when we look at the sky? Being from Georgia, feels especially poignant now that there's war going on in 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 Ukraine. Um, this this idea about like there, you you could be very close to some very bad things that are going on in the world, and to some extent, you kind of have to still go about your life, but you also have to live with the guilt of other people going through things that you're, that you're yeah. not. Um, and uh, I, I, I found what do we assume we look at this guy to be very, uh, very moving and poignant in that way, but also very fanciful and funny at the same time. All right. Next up for me, although I think, think we may wind up going past it this is, is your number eight yes this? yeah okay yeah uh paul schrader's the card counter yeah we will definitely get back to that later okay. uh i should have realized and now i have to look up the name of the director of my next film because this is a very obscure uh movie not that i'm patting myself on the back but um okay uh yeah Andrew- sorry some of us like barb star go to vista <laughs> <Yeah>. del mar <laughs> uh this is i think the only you know it's funny last week we did the through the cracks four out of my five were documentaries mm-hmm. now today today this is the only documentary i'll be talking about um mm-hmm. all day it's angelo madsen Menax's north by current okay uh which is a movie about a uh angelo uh Menax or madsen Menax is a filmmaker who lives in new york city but is from uh, a small town in i want to say minnesota i can't remember uh, and he goes back home to make a movie about the aftermath of his very young, um, as in like less than a year old niece who died. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if it was sudden infant death, death syndrome or what. They, I mean, I have some ideas, but they get the movie 
gets gets into that. Uh, but the fact that it's a movie made by someone within that family makes it less a movie about this thing that happened and more a portrait of family. Right. And it's, you know, the, the kind of documentaries that you and I tend to not like are the ones that start with the filmmaker already knowing where it's going right. to end up. They're just telling you. North by Current is a movie that is uncovering things, that is finding things, that is often... it. There are interviews with members of his family, but often what they're saying... The movie is revealing things that are different than what they're saying just by looking at them and, and putting certain things side by side. Um, the thing I haven't uh, mentioned yet, although if you remember when I talked about the movie journal, you remember this, that... Um, Angelo Madsen acts the uh, filmmaker is a trans man. Right. And the fascinating thing about this movie that's about a very recent trauma in this family, this very young, this baby dying, uh, is the realization that they are all still reeling from the trauma, if you will, of his transition. That he... Yeah is trying to go and document this thing, but he can't not be a part of the story because they still interact with so much of the world through this thing that happened in their family. Um, And it's uh, a movie that is sometimes very upsetting when you see from his point of view, you know, the way that he can be talked about, but it's also ultimately a very hopeful movie about family and about the the bonds that can't be severed at least in a healthy family um or or, you know it's not that's one thing the movie uncovers there's not like a toggle switch between healthy and unhealthy functional and dysfunctional family it's somewhere in the middle but i think this family comes across comes out ultimately looking more functional than dysfunctional because even though they struggle with these things and this 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 thing of of uh, the director's uh, transition and sometimes talk about it in ways that are very hurtful, almost seem- seemingly cruel. There's still something, they still love one another. And I think that uh, the thing that maybe fascinated me the most about North by current is the idea that this family, just like any family will sit down and tell you what makes them a family, what keeps them together, what they believe in, but it's what they actually do. The thing that keeps a family together might not be the thing that a family is believes about themselves. It's something deeper that maybe they don't even have the words for or have the conscious connection to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, someone else I was going to say there, and I forget. Uh, Damn. All right. Well, uh, that's North by Current, uh, which you can. I forgot to forgot to say yeah. where you can watch these movies. This one, if you are like me, a uh, a uh, 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 a good um, bougie liberal, and you are a regular donator to PBS, and and therefore you have the PBS passport, you can watch it there. If you just have the regular PBS app, it's it's locked. You have to be a 
uh, you have to have an ongoing donation to watch it. Other, other than that, I'm not really sure where else, unless PBS airs it again and you can DVR it or something. I'm not really sure where else you can find North by current, mm-hmm. but I'm really glad that I, uh, I'm glad I support PBS. We all support it whether we want to or not. That's the whole thing. <laughs> well, I I'm, I, I'm apparently a big supporter. Of CBS. I almost said CBS. I guess that's yeah. true as well. I do enjoy uh, the amazing race. Um, yeah, I guess we're all viewers like you. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Now we are, you know, we're not in the home stretch yet, but we're going to start getting to the point where we're get we're going to, talk about the movies that we uh, have been putting off. So now we are getting to, uh, we're my number seven, Seven, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is, uh, for me, it's Jane Campion's the power of the dog. Um, a movie that honestly, I feel like it could, it could be higher. Uh, I like, if I were to remake this list tomorrow, it could wind up being higher. It's a movie I've thought so much about. It has stayed with me. We've talked about it ad nauseum. It did very well at the BPs. Uh, and so we talked about it a lot uh, in various categories. And so I don't necessarily want to, to belabor it, except to say it's just such a, such a fully realized movie, uh, a film with, I think, you know, I haven't really talked much about the writing of, of these, uh, of these movies, but I think power of the dog is a, is a wonderfully written, wonderfully structured film and a movie that, you know, I think we tend, when talking about a a well-plotted, well-structured movie, we tend to think of, of a movie that might be a little bit shorter or has more, a a more brisk pace, but that's not necessarily, that doesn't have to be the case. And in the, and certainly with power of the dog, it's a, it's, it's very deliberately paced. Uh, It has this sort of meditative quality to it, but that doesn't mean that we, that characters are not making decisions uh, developing relationships. We are seeing the results of those decisions, characters interacting with each other, all the things that make for a very well structured screenplay. Um, and I think in its structure and Jane Campion's willingness to let, I was saying that before about drive my car, letting scenes breathe, letting moments breathe, letting uh, not over explaining things, letting us through the power of visual storytelling through some, through, you know, sometimes the look that an actor gives or a bit of body language, uh, sometimes an audio cue, uh, letting us, um, do some of the work. Not that I think it's, really hard work, but letting us do some of the work to, you know, fit some pieces together. Um, so that when we come to the end of the film, it is actually a shockingly satisfying experience. Like all in my view, like all the loose threads have been tied up. This is not a film with like a, with like an ambiguous ending or anything like that. I think this is a fully self-contained story with a beginning, middle and end that is also gorgeously photographed and really puts you inside this insular world. Uh, I do like, I'm not at all surprised. Like if I, if I didn't know that Jane Campion directed this, I think I might still think that she did because it does feel a lot like 
you know, sort of the, the film she's best known for the piano, which is someone is brought into a world they know very little about with their child and are trying to navigate it. Um, and so I think the actors are all doing really, I think they're finding everything that those actors can give that those characters, pardon me, can give them. And they're taking it one step further. Everybody involved in the film seems to understand what the movie is and what is, and their part of it uh, to help realize the whole, it is damn near perfect in my opinion. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, I won't talk too long because it was just an honorable mention for me. But uh, that's a part. Uh, that's partially because I do think this is an incredibly strong year. Um, it's the rare movie where it does feel like every single shot is designed to work as a piece of the whole in a way that doesn't become antiseptic or airless. Yeah, you know, um, which is it's like. Uh, well, I'm not gonna. We're, we're being positive. I'm not gonna like talk shit about other movies. So right. that's what that's 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 what I'll say. Like it, it has that, it breathes, but it's also remarkably efficient. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that because movies like this, which have you know that meditative tone, you know, when I think of a movie that I that I loved from a few years ago, uh, Columbus uh, by Koganada, um, you know that also has this, this kind of pace and that, this kind of feel, but I all, but I think that that film is also a little bit, a little bit airless, even though I, I do love the movie and I think that I can connect with these characters, but this is a film where no, it, the, the, the pacing and just the, and often, you know, use of negative space and all that, it all seems appropriate for the world that these characters live in. And so it's, it's all very, like all the stylistic choices are, in my opinion, completely organic um, to, to the story being told. Um, I think that's, that is the thing that really surprises me if I haven't established it already is I did not expect this film to be as story driven as it is. Or plot driven. Or plot driven. There's technically a difference. I just. Sure. I, I always have the like asshole listener in my head who's like correcting us in the comments or on Twitter. Sure. So yeah, yeah. But, but it's uh, but yeah, it's yeah. I I think I I genuinely think that it's perfect. I can't think of anything off about it. All right, so we're on to my number six. Yes, which is Joachim Trier's "The Worst Person in the World." Watch out, that's my number six as well. How about that? We're so we're in the. Uh, in sync here um yeah uh and this is like i was saying with uh what do we see when we look at this guy this is another movie that i feel really speaks to what it means to be alive right now and um in some of the same ways as what do we see when we look at this guy this like um the movie is full of this push and pull between like being young and carefree and also the world is weighing down on you and expecting things of you when you maybe are expecting things of yourself. And, yeah. um, uh, that, um, this character is by most people's estimation, an adult, the entire movie. And yet it, um, it feels in some ways like a coming of age movie, but we're not really sure by the end if she has come of age or if, you know, cause by the end of the movie, there's a, I won't say too much, but there's an epilogue of sorts at the end of the movie mm-hmm. in which she's following another path than we 
last yeah. saw her on career wise and um you could read that as like, oh, she found what she wants to do. Or you could read it as like, okay, we jumped ahead and she's trying something else now and she still hasn't figured it out. Uh, hmm. And I, I, I feel like that's the, um, uh, the, the struggle that a lot of young people and people like me who are in uh, arrested development in, in their 20s, uh, despite being almost 40, uh, struggle with all the time. It sounds like you feel differently about the epilogue than I do. I do, because I, I do think that well, what you've seen she, it more recently than I have, so you're probably more right. Well, what she is doing, we're seeing seeds of it previously, like as far as what her profession is. And so to, to jump ahead and see that that is what she is now doing. Yeah. Uh, and we see around her apartment proof that she's been doing it successfully for a while. So like, all right, at the very least professionally, it feels like she's sort of settled in to something that she likes doing and is good at. Um, and then, yeah, I don't want to go and I don't want to spoil things, but yeah. uh, you know, she, she sees somebody uh, and then her reaction kind of suggests that she is at peace with that and doesn't regret it and is happy with where she is. And I do think that uh, I think you're right to to say that it's it's coming of age. But I think we all have an idea of what that means. But I think increasingly for people, I'd say our age, but her character is younger than than us. So I'd say people go moving into their 30s. Um, I think coming of age might mean a few different things. One of it could mean one of the the things it could mean is recognizing who you are, what you want, and that you might not fit into the standard mold and you might not fit into it yet. Maybe down the line you will and being okay with that and not just feeling the pressure that society puts on you and that you're putting on yourself, like just learning to be okay with who you are and where you are. Um, it's something that I, I think I had mentioned. Um, what was it? Oh, I was, I mentioned on the TV journal uh, over uh, at our Patreon um, where I was watching uh, Falcon and the winter soldier. Um, and it had been a bit, it was a Friday night. It had been a busy week. Jen was shooting. The kids were in bed and I like ordered a pizza and I felt a lot of pressure to like be watching something else. But I, 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 I was interested to see this show. And so I sat down and I was eating my pizza and I told myself out loud, you're doing this right now. And that's okay. <laughs> I had to, I had to tell myself it was okay. And it feels like this whole movie is her saying, this is what you're doing and that's okay. That doesn't mean that the film fully lets her off the hook either, because along the way, as you're finding yourself, you're probably going to hurt people. Like you, you might wind up getting involved in some heartbreak or, or being undependable in some ways. Every literally everybody experiences that uh, in some capacity, you can't avoid it. And so I think it's a film that that is very clear-eyed about who she is, what she's doing. She's not a callous person. Uh, she's just trying to figure out who she is, and a big part of that determines uh, is is determining who she isn't, which means leaving certain choices behind, which sometimes means leaving certain people behind. And I think the film wisely humanizes those people as well, so that the whole film just feels like. 
there are wonderful and still and unfortunate aspects to living, to just being a part of this world, getting older, developing relationships, romantic or otherwise. Uh, and it's, it is heartbreaking in one way and yet celebratory in another. It really is a, is a very special movie. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of special movies, my number five is Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island. All right. Uh, which is, uh, I made uh, oblique reference to this movie before when I was talking about the souvenir part two, this is the other movie that is about uh, being an artist and uh, living your life, but also creating work based on your life. And um, those things being, not separate being part of a continuum and Bergman Island makes the continuum expands it even further because it's about artists visiting the place where an artist, they, they love lived. And so they're there because of him, but he made his movies there. Uh, I'm talking about Ingmar Bergman, if that's not uh, clear, he made his movies there. So he was either inspired by the, island that he lived on or he imbued the island with something of himself and now they're they're feeding off that energy but also they're bringing they're they're a couple they're both filmmakers and they're uh i can't remember if they're married or not but their relationship is not necessarily in the best shape and so there are these kind of suggestions like oh you're staying in the house where scenes from a marriage was shot like this is not a good uh omen for your marriage <laughs> but like that's also uh you could say well but no that's just a movie there's a they came with real problems but also like art comes from reality so is it crazy to think that the energy of a movie could uh, uh infect a person's r real life uh, and then the movie has another layer where Vicky Creep's uh, character is working on a screenplay and we see uh, Mia Vashikovska and uh, Ander Anders Danielson Lee, who's also the worst person in the world. We see their story that is playing out also on the island of Pharaoh. It's not called Bergman Island, uh, by the way. Um, uh, and, and, uh, this, and so this stream this continuum of living and creating and influencing and being influenced uh continues and it doesn't stop it it keeps flowing maybe it goes in a circle um the movie's only two hours long not long enough to know how long this thing uh goes on but it's um it's such an open and warm movie in a way that i f i feel like people's people's idea of Ingmar Bergman is not going to be reflected in Bergman Island, but Ingmar Bergman was actually a much more like somatic and humanistic mm -hmm. I think, um, uh, filmmaker than people give him credit for. They just think of like his stuff as being all internal and cerebral and, and, yeah. and, and stuff. But um, the connection to the world around you is a physical place that is imbued with memory and personality uh, is there in, in Bergman's work. And it's definitely there in Bergman Island. Well, let's stay with Bergen uh, Bergman for a moment because uh, my next film is Joel Cohen's the tragedy of Macbeth. Oh. And I think it's a film that, that 
actively incorporates and, and I think shamelessly and unabashedly incorporates um filmic influences like Orson Welles and I think uh Ingmar Bergman among others um it is you know at this point anytime you you adapt a well-known Shakespeare play or or any kind of well-known work the question is always like okay yeah all right what are you going to bring to it um now when it's one of the Coen brothers like well they're it's going to bring something. Um, but I didn't expect it to be what it is where it's, it's just unapologetically stagey. It feels there, there, you know, uh, as far as influences go, like there's also, I think an expressionistic influence as well, where like, even when you're outdoors, you feel very much like you're indoors, you know, that uh, there's this wall of, fog and mist that is just enclosing you at all times um but and on the other side of that fog is like the wall of the soundstage exactly like <laughs> exactly yeah. coiled, uh, hanging on a hook. yeah there's just uh you know a bunch of uh union guys just drinking coffee um yeah. but uh so i i'm not sure exactly why i like it so much just that the film is Yes, it is, I think, finding interesting beats to play in the story of of Macbeth. And I've talked about that elsewhere, uh, specifically with the character of Macbeth. Like we tend to think of Lady Macbeth as the more dynamic character, which is understandable. But by casting Denzel Washington, not only is he a wonderful actor, but he's also an actor that we associate with a certain kind of nobility. He can play like the 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 solid, reliable guy so well, which and he does at the beginning of the film, which is why when he turns into just a dangerous raving maniac by the end, it is so, so sad and so frustrating and so frightening. Um, so I think, I think he does find some, some stuff within uh, the play itself, but also just creating this world where, it, you know, the art direction is, I said it, the, the the photography and the art direction and the lighting, it's all very stagey, but also just the way that the sets are designed, you know, where outside of the throne, there's basically no furniture. Uh, everything just feels is just so sparse. And it's like, I'd say it, it boils the play down to its basic elements, but I think it even goes further than that and just boils everything down to what is, what is visually necessary but no one would ever say this is a minimalistic film uh, because the, the, the way the, the film is shot is just so dense and so rich and full. And yeah, it's uh, I, I loved it. All right. So number four for me um, is the aforementioned licorice pizza directed All by right. Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, we've already addressed people's complaints about the, uh, various uh uh problematic elements of the movie whether or not they are problematic i'm not gonna you can refer to our past discussions if you want to hear uh about that uh what i want to talk about i think is just what a uh increasingly naturally just comfortable filmmaker pt anderson is the 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 way that this movie is 
often feels like a hangout movie, but is also so effortlessly perfectly constructed. I mean, if I had to pick, if I had to pick a single favorite scene from a movie this past year, I might pick Alana Haim driving the truck backwards down the hill. Uh, Yeah. It's, I was as, my breath was as taken away and I was as on the edge of my seat as in any other sort of big suspense or action action movie. And the thing is there are multiple, that one's obviously the, the most uh, um, uh, obvious flashy one. Cause it's a yeah. big fucking truck barreling backwards down a hill at night with no gas. Um, but uh, there are multiple moments that for a movie that is, to compare it to something like Belfast, which we talked about a million years ago, um, it's also a sort of somewhat autobiographical, semi-autobiographical. Right. It was about being a, a, a teen in the 1970s San Fernando Valley. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm losing track, but uh, what I was saying, but uh, for all of, for all of that, it still has great big grand, moments that don't feel i don't want to just talk shit about belfast again um uh they feel like they have emerged naturally out of nothing that that licorice pizza is always a naturalistic film there's weird shit that happens in 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 this movie um but then also you could say like maybe like being a normal, like a quote unquote normal, like suburban American teen in a place that also happens to be filled with super rich people and movie stars. Right. Maybe weird shit just did happen all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, maybe William Holden, you know, jumped his motorcycle on uh, on a golf course uh, near where you live. Who knows? Um, but, uh, but again, those moments, that's another great, that's another great big moment that yeah. is so masterfully built to and it's every element of 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 the filmmaking the 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 way that it's framed and shot and staged but also the way that it's edited and he's a writer director the way that it's written you, yeah. you know um the big moment with Sean Penn on the motorcycle doesn't feel as big without Tom Waits's dialogue yeah. and all uh, everything is working together in a, in a way that um just feels miraculous you know there are times as a film critic that i'm watching a movie that is not working and i'm saying i feel like i know what could have worked there i know what could have improved this but sometimes there are movies that work so well that i'm like fuck this is a this is a sixth sense this is a some sort of like uh magical power that he has i i don't know yeah. how to describe the way that watching a for someone who watches as much movie as much movies what am i i've been talking for too long <laughs> someone who watches as many movies as i do and in the way that i do where i'm often taking notes and thinking about what yeah. i'm gonna write afterwards the quickness with which licorice pizza made me forget what movies are in a way if that makes sense sure. that just the, the opening sequence at the at the the photo day at the high school is so immersive it's leisurely but it's also enrapturing in in such a way that i was just like 
forget everything. Like I'm not thinking about anything else right yeah. now. I'm not thinking about the fact that I've ever seen a movie before. I'm just watching this, whatever this is. Maybe I don't, maybe I don't know what movies are, whatever this is in the moment. This is all I care about. Yeah. It was in my uh, honorable mention. Uh, and, and as I said uh, in the, in the movie journal, it's a film that I think for me, it, it's, it's the downside of, of being an auteurist, you know, I'm so accustomed to like this, this real, like heady weighty kind of thing to Paul Thomas Anderson, like there'll be blood and the master and phantom thread. Uh, and then you see this and it's, and it's often light as a feather. And so like, even though I enjoyed it tremendously as I was watching it, this it's a common thread in in a lot of the stuff that I've been saying is it like, I feel like I need to see it again now that I know what it is because what it is, is pretty perfectly realized. The issue is me and being like, Oh, th like just because this isn't as obviously meticulous as something like phantom thread, that doesn't mean that there isn't as much thought put into the way the film is shot, the way it's edited and the, the, the bigness of things like when Gary opens his various stores, you know, all in the same location, of course. Um, like when he does that, like it's this grand opening and it feels just as big as anything that I may have seen in like nightmare alley. Uh, it may not be as, 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 uh, sort of, typically beautiful as you would expect from like the, just this, these old lavish uh, offices and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it is beautiful in its own way. It's like, yes, the 1970s San Fernando Valley, probably not the most traditionally good looking era or place, but there's such a, there's such a grandiosity to it, because, which totally fits in with the character of Gary. Um, and uh, yeah. And it's just all of these, wonderful beautifully realized uh vignettes and they and what do they add up to i'm still working on that and maybe when i get there i will i would love the movie enough for it to be in my top 10 but i think the issue here is me it's still my top 10 uh, sorry it's still my my honorable mentions but so we uh, your number four then yes which is the aforementioned the green knight um oh right i forgot we hadn't talked about this yet yeah, it's, uh, you know, the I, I've been talking a lot about whether it be Nightmare Alley or Power of the Dog, like just these movies and, and Tragedy of Macbeth, now that I think about it, just these movies that bring you into a, a world you've never seen before. And I feel like Green Knight is probably the one of all of the movies I've, I've mentioned so far that in which the world you're being brought into is the most foreign. Um, because even though we've seen, you know, movies of like with Knights of the round table and all that, just the, the tone of the film, like this is a world where, where magic exists, but it's not like necessarily something that is constantly called attention to like in the world of Harry Potter, it's just sort of there. What would it be like to live in a world and just exist in a world where magic and ethereal things can interact with you and can interrupt this dinner to challenge someone, you know, at any moment. And what does that look like? And then what is that, you know, and then 
when the idea that we're still dealing with just flawed, regular people in the midst of all that, uh, it's, it's, it's such a, a fascinating exploration of both of those things that would seem to be at odds with each other. And they often are, but you know, if you actually look at like a lot of like Arthurian myth, if you've read the once in future King, or if you've seen John Borman's Excalibur, you know, we have this idea of Camelot. We have this idea of King Arthur as like this, uh, perfect and, and his, and his Knights of the round table in that world is like perfect. You know, we talk, you know, when someone refers to Camelot, they talk about this idealized thing. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, if you've looked into any Arthurian myth, like it is far from perfect. Like these are often tragically flawed characters interacting with, uh, with the supernatural. And that is absolutely what the green Knight is. And the supernatural just permeates the entire visual aesthetic of the film, along with the, the, um, just the general tone of the film. But at the core of it is a very real person who is trying to figure out who he is, who he's expected to be, what he wants. Uh, and, uh, and by the end, he, he feels a little bit more clarity about what that is. Uh, you know, I, in its own way, the film is an interesting companion to worst person in the world, given that like the characters are kind of in the same, uh, sort of in the same age group, very different circumstances, except trying to figure out what do I actually want? And maybe even why do I want it? Uh, do I actually want it? Um, and all of this with just this, this surreal imagery that just completely envelops you, not always in a way that is pleasant, uh, sometimes very much the opposite. So yeah, well, I loved it. Um, I'm going to uh, reference a, uh... Once again, Sean Ingram, who did the Needle Drops uh, episode, uh, he also put together a list of his favorite movies of the year ranked by how metal they are. And uh, <laughs> The Green Knight came in at number two behind Titan, which I think is uh, uh, a, a good ranking. And, and it's, it's funny, but it also, I think the things that I love about The Green Knight are very similar to the things that I love about certain kinds of metal, that it there's a there's a danger there's a scariness to it yeah. but it's a, there's also a beauty that is very alluring and and um there's a uh and and uh what's it gawain uh is that the character's name uh yeah i've always known it as as gawain but i don't but in think the movie that's how they, they say, they gawain, say right? yeah, yeah. or something like that i think so. um that he he feels that too he's terrified um so much of the movie, not just of the green Knight, but also of like Joe Edgerton's a real like unsettling yeah. guy in the movie. Like there's a lot of stuff that is, that is scary, but he keeps on moving forward because he feels compelled to. And, yeah. um, he, he could be moving toward his, his, his certain death. And I, and I think that, um, I think people who tend to respond well, to that sort of thing are the same people who respond well to certain kinds of like black metal, heavy metal, power yeah. metal, stuff like that. Anyway. Um, is it my turn then? Mind It's my, uh, my number, yes. My number, number three, three at, coming at number three. Um, affectionately known as the other 
Ryosuke Hamaguchi movie of 2021, uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is a mere two hours long. If you had watched it, you would have gotten halfway through (laughs) instead of a third of the way. (laughs) Well, you know, he's bending to the will of the studio, undoubtedly. Uh, But I'm I'm not sure, you know, the thing that sucks about doing this podcast is I'm forced to put things into words that sometimes I don't yeah. know how to, I think drive my car is so beautiful. I'm not, I, I'm having trouble putting into words why I think real fortune and fantasy affected me more. It could just be that it uh, speaks to certain things that, uh, that, that are of, of more interest to me. And maybe the fact that it has more characters, because it's actually a, a triptych. It's, it's three short stories. Um, it gets to although what am I saying? Drive my car has a ton of characters, has all cast, but it still has like the one main guy. Anyway, um, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy has uh, a, a bunch of characters, um, but they're generally paired off. the 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 three segments could each be seen as a mostly two person plays. There's other people who come and go out of them, but they're most. It mostly comes down to to uh, two people and to repeat something that i said about other movies there's for as the movies like power of the dog for as deliberate as the movie seems and how tightly scripted i don't think it's the kind of movie where the actors are improvising there's a lot of dialogue it feels very deliberately scripted and yet it doesn't feel i'll use the word again it doesn't feel schematic it uh it feels like it's it feels like like a really good play where you're actually seeing ideas and personalities and stations in the world and and in the culture and in society uh draw themselves out of the words and out of the 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 characters and actually do combat with one another in a way or maybe not maybe they they come together but uh the thing that is the the there's three short stories like i said there's one of a uh um a woman who has found out that her friend is dating her ex-boyfriend but doesn't know that the guy's her ex-boyfriend goes and confronts her ex-boyfriend and they have a whole back and forth Hmm. uh the second one is a woman who goes to see her boyfriend's college professor with the intent to trap him into doing or saying something inappropriate to try and blackmail him. Hmm. And then the third one is two people uh, who recognize one another from high school and decide to like spend the afternoon together. Hmm. Uh, Very different stories, but um, each one of them allows these not not in a in a mean or small way but in a in a larger way these power dynamics to keep shifting you know um Mm -hmm. there's at any given point in any of these conversations someone has the upper hand or someone is guiding the 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 topic but it could change at any moment. You don't know how, and yet it always, it always seems to happen so naturally and organically. And again, not in a way that feels like it's telling you how to feel about the characters. 
the movie loves everyone. And I think that's maybe why I um, responded to it so, so well. Sometimes I need uh, things that are going to make me feel better about <laughs> humanity. Um, mm. And uh, I, I, I think that the Wheel of Fortune and Fantasies unending and deep as the sea humanism is what really spoke to me and why it's on my list. All right. My number three is Michael Sarnowski's pig, uh, a film that I think is imperfect. Incidentally, um, there are, there are moments of the film and we've talked about this quite a bit, uh, in various capacities. So I don't want to go into too much detail, but, um, there are moments where you can tell the directors is trying something and I'm not sure if, if it's always successful um, as far as like a world building kind of thing. But what I, but from a thematic standpoint and how the film realizes its themes, um, that's what really works for me. Uh, there, you know, theme in itself is not enough for me to love a movie, but how the movie chooses to go about realizing and communicating that theme uh, can go a long way for me. And so, you know, at its, at its core uh, pig is about the clarity that, that loss can bring because, you know, you have this character played by Nicholas cage who, you know, is living off the completely off the grid uh, dis- despite being at one time a, a very su- an extremely successful chef and known citywide, really. Uh, but after the death of his wife, he just decides screw everything, and he just goes and lives in a cabin somewhere with his pig uh, that uh, that hunts truffles for him. And so then he gets pulled back into this world uh, of restaurateurs and that sort of thing, but. What I like is what I like is that first off, I think the the film embraces the as I said before, the clarity that loss can bring, which is this idea of like someone you love or you yourself could die at any moment. Knowing that, why are you why are you wasting? so much time on stuff that that isn't maybe that maybe that's not that important you know there's plenty of important stuff but maybe that it's not that important to you right now you are spending so much time on a compromised version of what you're of what you like or what you love or you are you have compromised your own moral sensibility to accomplish something that would feel so very insignificant if you had the proper perspective and lost can tend to provide someone with the proper perspective, which is why, uh, you know, Nicholas cages, his weapon, as he's like going up against these various characters, his weapon is simply reminding them of what they once prioritized. Um, and something that everybody, as you get older, you make these little compromises with yourself. You have to. And then the question is, what compromises are, are can you absolutely live with? And it's not that big of a deal. And which ones haunt you? Uh, which ones would haunt you if you if you let them? You know, if somebody said, hey, you know, you used to want to do this. So what's 
why are you not doing that anymore? It's like, and your reason could be it was too hard or it was too time consuming or it was scary, whatever it is. Um, and I really like, I mean, it's it, in many ways, it's all very obvious. This idea is like, Hey, you only live once or whatever it is, but you know, I, there are movies that can remind me of something that I already know and already believe, but the way they execute that through the dialogue, through the filmmaking, through the acting, the way they execute that makes it, makes the message feel so fresh. And it makes me feel to use a Christian term. I feel very convicted in some of the choices that I've made and some of the things that I let occupy my mind, you know, um, we are approaching, we're quickly approaching 20 years since my father passed away. And at the time I remember, um, I was, I had told him, uh, shortly before that, cause my, my brother got married, like, I think a week and a half before my father died. Uh, so we all saw each other and my dad, uh, wondered if I was, if there were any romantic interests in my, in my life. And at the time I was interested in Jen, but we were going to be like in, in like a, a Bible study to a small Bible study together that I was going to be leading. And it just felt somehow wrong that like, not morally wrong, but just like, eh, mm. What if I'm, what if, what if I bring, you know, personal bullshit into leading the Bible study in retrospect, it's, it's, it's not a bad consideration, but it's also not that big of a deal. And that is, and my dad told me as such, he said, I think that's good that you're thinking along those lines, but at the same time, this, this Bible study group is going to end at the end of the semester, as opposed to a relationship, which could last for a while. And uh, my reaction at the time was like, Oh, dad you don't understand that sort of thing. And then he died shortly thereafter. And, and it's not as though his words suddenly gained more meaning. It's more just like, yeah, who gives a shit? Like, it's just suddenly this thing that this, this little rule that I had set for myself, I, I saw it for how arbitrary it was. And so I was like, yeah, to hell with it. I'm going to ask out Jen because who knows what could happen. And so but what happened? (laughs) Bad news, man. (laughs) Um, So the, uh, but that's the thing. So like, you know, the, the reality of loss provided a sense of clarity and, and a sense of perspective immediately, but then time goes on and you forget that. And, and you get, certainly I let myself get bogged down in all kinds of pretty mundane bullshit. Um, And then a movie like pig comes along and it reminds you that this stuff can go away very quickly. And if the stuff that you really love could go away quickly, and if it did uh, that would suddenly be the most important thing in your, in your life, as opposed to, you know, worrying about what your boss thinks, which is important, but not the most important thing. Um, And so there's all of that, but I think on top of everything, there is, I think the film suggests like when it sees how Nicolas Cage is living and some of the choices that he makes, I think it also recognizes that you can't let yourself be defined solely by loss because he has a lot to give to the world, but he refuses to acknowledge that there's anything else other than the death of his wife. And he chooses to spoilers, everyone, he chooses to go back to that life. And 
There are times when I'm not sure if the film is on board with him, but I think when it realizes through the eyes of Alex Wolf, when it realizes what he can do and what he was once so great at, I think the film laments the fact that he in his own life has put too much emphasis on loss. So I think the film really, I've, I've talked so much about this already. I'm sorry, but like the film ultimately is about balance is about keeping things in the proper perspective so that you live a more passionate life and a life where you actually do prioritize the things that, you know, take priority but you, you forget so easily without letting yourself dip over into just losing your mind and, and, and letting yourself be defined by loss or the, or the possibility of loss. So like pig really clearly just maybe because of where I am in my life right now, whatever it is really resonated with me. And I think that when I think in those terms and how well the film executes that the sort of the, the story stuff that may not work for me kind of falls away. Uh, so it's an imperfect film, but one that I nonetheless really loved. Okay. Uh, my number two film of 2021, we mentioned it before, but I told you to put a pin in it to okay. stick a sock in it. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Paul Schrader's the card counter. Uh, first off, I, uh, I'll just say that, part of what I love about this movie is that I'm glad that Oscar Isaac is still doing this sort of thing. Yes, I yes. had this fear that like, Oh, he's a, you know, Disney marquee idol now with the Star Wars movies. Like, is he just going to be and uh, moon Knight? He's now uh, right. in yes. the moon Knight show. So is he just going to be this dashing leading man? But yeah. no, he still wants to clearly wants to do and is good at doing the kind of roles that made me like Oscar Isaac in the first place. Yeah. Uh, the card counter is a movie about a, a person who uh, has done horrible things. And there's now it almost, it, it feels wrong to put this movie in a box and say it's a redemption story. Cause that's actually up for debate, whether or not the movie I think sure. is a redemption story, but let's say it is for now, a lot of redemption stories in movies place the audience in the position of being the entity that sanctions the redemption that the, the right. sort of the 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 forgiveness or whatever the thing that that the that the character has to earn is going to come from us but the card right. counter puts us in his in his shoes yeah um we're uh suffering with him but also we're indignant with him because the the movie is not pat in terms of the way it's a movie about individual responsibility and institutional responsibility and neither one it's not a zero-sum game and one does not forgive the other and so it's a movie that takes place in a very tumultuous middle ground and but is outwardly taking on the coping mechanism of its lead character of being very still and, and, and smooth and trying to glide through the world, but also that makes it seem too easy. It's trying to move through the world without touching anything. Hmm. There's, you know, there's, um, there's a reason that he, the, the character, whenever he throughout the movie, whenever he goes to a new motel room, he always stays in motels, doesn't stay in hotels, 
for he gives a reason, but I also think there's a part of him that doesn't feel like he deserves a nicer right. room. Um, and then he covers everything with sheets. Uh, and then he goes to these casinos all over the country that every casino looks kind of the same. Every place he goes, you know, the movie takes place all over the country. I'm sure they shot the entire thing in sure. one state because everything looks the same. And yeah. that is both a place where he feels comfortable because he's sort of institutionalized from having been imprisoned, but it's also what he thinks he deserves because yeah. he hasn't forgiven himself, but he also, he's not necessarily trying to forgive himself either. Um, yeah. You know, he, he takes a big action near the end of the movie, but it's debatable what sort of potpourri of motivations, uh, drove him to to do that um but what we see when we see what drove him to live the life the way he currently lives which is the flashbacks to abu Ghraib, um yeah. which are so hellish um and so disorienting in um not just in what's depicted in terms of seeing people being tortured but um paul schrader shoots the flashbacks in a way that are uh uh, I already I already used the word disorienting, so I have to find a way. discombobulating. Sure. Uh, um, that the mind sort of revolts at looking at the world this way because it doesn't, the way the flashbacks are shot doesn't look real or doesn't look the way the world looks. It looks right. like another dimension. It looks hellish. Um, so, uh, but uh, what I'm describing is this person who's, punishing himself or torturing himself or has these terrible flashbacks but then there's also this relationship between him and tiffany haddish's character which offers some you know i said that he tries to move through all that without touching anything here's someone that he can touch someone who maybe sees him or at least will touch him and uh, accept him um and uh, the way there's a beautiful sequence when they go to this, like, I don't know what it is. It's like a park. That's all like lights. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you walk around a, par- a park at night and everything's these individual lights. And it looks like a field of stars, but like a fictional red stars, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, um, but it separates them from the world around them. And so yeah. he's been going through this world on his own, you know, live making every place he lives uh, a place of solitude for him. And then that, um, that moment with him and Tiffany Haddish, where suddenly they're again, separated from the rest of the world, but suddenly he's with someone else in that, yeah. in that place. I'm not going to lie and say that I cried at that moment, but I um, came pretty close. I got very emotional during, during that sequence. Yeah, I mean, nobody, to my knowledge, can do guilt like Paul Schrader. Uh, You know, you look at guilt and self-hatred and characters who just exist in like an alternate reality. You know, they they're basically ghosts, you know, and I use the word exist specifically like this character at best is existing 
Because I do think that he feels like, no, I don't really deserve to live, but I'm not going to die either. So the only thing I can really do is exist. So how can I keep myself existing? Well, I can do this, uh, but I'm not, I, I'm not going to get like, I'm not going to do any of the things that a person does when they're living, like buy a house or go on dates or whatever it is. I'm not going to do anything traditionally enjoyable um, because I stopped living years ago. Right. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to exist until I don't anymore. Um, and then, and then yes, he, he starts to, he starts to feel these things towards Ty Sheridan, towards Tiffany Haddish. And this idea that like, and the feelings are, are organic because they're, they're inevitable, whether you're attracted to someone or you feel a, a need to protect someone, they're very human and very organic. And he has been living as a non-human for a while and just doesn't really know what to do with these. He doesn't really seem to embrace them at first. And then when he starts to, uh, he, you can see in Oscar Isaac's performance, it's just like, I don't deserve this, but also it's been so long since I've had this. I don't even really know what to do with it um, until yes, of a, an ending that I think is ambiguous an argument, you know, could be. Ah, hmm. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. I'll, I'll hold off. I'll just say, I, I, I think an argument could be made that it is redemption or it's him choosing damnation again um i think it could go either way but uh but yeah but it's a it's such a it's such a marvelous film that just yeah shows someone who lives life on the fringes completely by choice and a wonderful performance by by oscar isaac um okay so that's your number two my number two is joe wright's cyrano okay Okay. Um, well, now I'm now I'm trying to rack my brain as to what your number one is. Eh, <laughs> okay. it's not that big of a deal. I just I moved some things around, really, uh, just as I was looking at the list, like just really trying to be honest uh, with myself and how I feel about certain things. Um, I've you know, and, and by the way, it's it's basically a tie for number okay. one. I'm choosing Cyrano to be second. Who knows? The next time I watch it, it might. I, I, it might dazzle me all over again. It, it's a film I've already talked about. I, I love that it is unabashed. So many people, myself included, have used the word unabashedly mm-hmm. when discussing it because I feel like, especially in regards to romance and romantic movies, like we're just so accustomed to all the cliches that there's a certain cynicism and certain, certainly like a, a often a meta commentary in the midst of, of romance. Um, Cyrano casts all of that away uh, and just commits fully to the, to the tone and to the story that it is telling uh, a, a familiar story, certainly. And everything that goes with it from the, the heartbreak to the tragedy um, to the exhilaration and doing all of this uh, set to music, you know, so that these characters are, it, it in a way, it, it makes perfect sense that the story of Cyrano de Bergerac would eventually become a musical because there's there's always been a lyricism to the to that story, um, and just having these characters who have this very real and heightened longing for 
to love someone and, and also be loved in a way that accepts them for who they are. And, and all of them, um, feel like there's something maybe hampering people from, from truly loving them as, as people, you know, certainly Roxanne is, is an object of affection for various people. Uh, but as we see from like, uh, the, the, I think his name is Degish, the, uh, Ben Mendelsohn character, like he, he, I think he does care about her, but, uh, I also think he sees her as a sort of prize and she certainly doesn't want that. She wants to be, loved and accepted for who she is, but also wants to be with someone that makes her feel more alive and inspires love in her. Um, and so, uh, and then you have Christian feeling like tongue tied and not feeling particularly smart and feels like that's a hindrance. And obviously Cyrano has, has his own as well. Um, and so it's just this, this sort of love triangle and just this sense of a very real, longing and i and i love that joe wright just committed to that and just understood that like yes we know this story yes we've seen these emotions elsewhere but you know what like there's a universality there's a reason the story's been told so many times but also the the emotions underneath it there's a there's a universality everybody can can understand these so if i just commit it's why you know you and I talk about melodrama not being a, a dirty word. If you if you do melodrama right, no one's going to have a problem with it because you are doing something that everyone can relate to. They may not want to admit that they can relate to it on this heightened level, but when they're being honest with themselves, like the those what they are feeling in certain moments is just as big as what they're seeing on screen. And I think Joe Wright understands that. His cast understands that. The lyricists understand that. Uh, and so Cyrano is a film that just wears its heart firmly on its sleeve and, and invites you to, to just like shed your own, uh, your own shields, your own guards, and just be a part of this movie and engage with this part of your, of yourself and your own sense of romantic longing and, 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 and get out and often get out of uh, also get out of your own way in, in your pursuit of that. Even if you're already with someone um, there's still, there can still be a lot of self-protection going on, even in the midst of a, of a, an existing relationship. So, um, so yeah, I, and I think the film is also just beautifully realized from a stylistic standpoint, but I, more than anything, I just, I just so appreciate Joe Wright committing 110% to a potentially cheesy tone. Uh, and in doing so totally, in my opinion, undercutting that potential, yeah, the potential and, for uh, cheese. Yeah. And, uh, great songs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. We're on to my number one, but I, I, I almost want to like power through it. Cause I'm so curious as to what your number one oh, is right now. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> okay. I assure but you. You said it's something that I've seen and I'm trying to think what I've seen that neither of us has talked about yet. That right. Be your number one. Anyway, that's not the point. Is it the little things? Is that, uh, your number one movie? That's the here? one. That's the one you've nailed it. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So my number one film of the year is, uh, Epichet Pung with Seth the Cool's Memoria, a um, movie made by a Thai director about a British woman living in Colombia. <laughs> uh, and that, I, I, I mentioned that because I think that being out of sorts is very much what the movie is about. Um, so this went and plays a woman who 
lives in Colombia, but in um, I think she lives she lives in Medellin, and the movie takes place in Bogota. But it, I could I could have that backwards. Um, she's in any case, she's in a city that she is not used to to visit her sister who's uh, uh, unwell, but spends most of the time sort of wandering around having conversations all the while she is experiencing this potentially mental neurological phenomenon where she keeps hearing intensely loud thudding, banging noises in her head that no one else around her is, Mm. is, is hearing, Um, which is very uh, scary. Um, I, I, I think that's, but it's also like there's some comedy in it too, but uh, I, I think um, that's kind of where Joe. I'm going to call the director Joe because that's what he goes by. Okay. Um, I think that's where where Joe is wanting you to get to this place of not the 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 loud sounds are supposed to knock you as they have to her out of your comfort zone to use a cliche. Um, and and to realize the to think about the temporariness of your time here i think nothing uh like um being forced to wander around an unfamiliar place that is home to other people nothing like that there's nothing like that to make you realize how insignificant you might be in the world that like uh um you go to another city and you're like, oh, wow, this is a city of millions of people who have no idea who I am and who are going about their lives uh, completely unaffected by my existence here on this earth. But the movie is also not sad or cynical about it because it's also, it goes to more metaphysical places, especially in the, in the very long final uh, scene, a, a two-person discussion. Um, not unlike in uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, it ends with just two people talking for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that gets into uh, what is not temporary. That the the sort of spiritual idea that something of you, or at least something of what you did, or something of what you experienced uh lives on that these things are still in the ether and a correctly tuned antenna to use the term that the uh character she's talking to uh uses um uh could could pull down and you don't know what things um are going to are about you are going to to live on but um it all goes back to that opening shot of her sitting up in the middle of the night because this this uh incredibly loud sound has 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 awoken her um and the the movie effectively in that moment knocks you out of your self and manages to keep you at that in in that sort of uh uh nowhere in a way that's both scary and freeing at at the same time for its entire uh runtime it's also a beautiful use of sound design um that uh, uh is common to joe's movies which i should say technically 
uh, but Chad Pong, we were cool, made two of the best movies of 2021. If you count his, uh, his installment in the year of the everlasting storm, which was the mm. like, um, pandemic inspired anthology movie, uh, where he had the best of the bunch in, in that. Mm. Um, and that's also a very sound driven, uh, short. So, um, yeah, um, Memoria is, uh, entrancing. It, it, um, is not, ju- not only beautiful, it, it, brought me to a mental place that no other movie has gotten me to or that I even like necessarily knew I could be in for two hours. Hmm. Uh, what a wonderful transition because that is ultimately how I feel about my number one. It's kind of what pushed it a little bit further um, to, to just edge out uh Cyrano which while I adore the commitment of of Cyrano uh a lot of it is is stuff that I've seen before however okay a movie that you consider a 2020 movie Janisa Bravo's yeah Janisa Bravo's Zola that's why I wasn't thinking yeah yeah great movie though such a wonderful film and a movie that I that has, I, I'm so glad I saw I saw it on a whim. I knew nothing about it. I to this day have not read that tweet thread. Okay. Um, and so I went in cold. I had heard people like it, but that was it. And I was just treated to this celebration of of film. It's 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 similar to what I was saying about the power of the dog and that like all of these elements just working together, but such a different in such a different way. Like this is a film of such tremendous energy at all times. Like it is a very active movie from a filmmaking standpoint, like what the camera is doing, what the editing is doing, what the sound design is doing, all of these coming together, uh, you know, use of uh, existing music and, and just to, to create the, the, you know, the world that is like, it's the world we live in, but not really. Um, but like the world of these, of these characters, what they listen to references that they make. Um, you really feel like you're being pulled into this sort of, I don't know. It's, I, I compared it at the time to um, a sort of Elmore Leonard story where just, and I, and I, stick by that. Um, I may, I might even throw in something like early David Mamet, um, where you just see like working class people trying to make a go of it. But in this case, the way in which they're working class, uh, and the way that they interact with each other and the choices that they are, that they're making, maybe because they don't have a lot of other choices. Um, you just, everything just feels so, complete uh as far as like the the beats of the story and 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 going back to what i was saying about uh you know nightmare alley there's this feeling of inevitability the idea that like with every new development it's like shit man like this is just getting worse and worse which also speaks to a and, and I think I talked about Janisa Bravo when we did individual achievement. And I talked about her as, as a director because such a command of seemingly contradictory tones, you would not expect a movie that is often as sad 
as this to also be so tremendously suspenseful and tense. And there are sequences that when they're, you know, as we're leading up to them and then when they do happen, you're just like, I don't, because of course I hadn't read the the Twitter thread. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I think someone could die or at the very, Oh, okay. Yes. No death. Just someone has been very badly beaten up. Uh, Um, (laughs) But that's the thing is like often very sad while never being condescending, by the way, even with somebody like Riley Keough's character, which I think is key that the film is able to lament where she is while still being frustrated with her. Um, and I think when you're able to do both of those, it suggests a trim, just an, a very honest love for that character. Um, it's really only Coleman Domingo's character that we don't really love. <laughs> he is uh, just a, just a, such a great, again, Elmore Leonard-esque villain yeah. Yeah. Um, and a wonderful performance. Like what, one of the biggest moments in the theater for me it, all of last year is when his voice changes, uh, more specifically his accent. And suddenly it, it, it just provides such a, such a, a wonderful reveal uh, for you. And you're just like, holy shit, this is so much more serious than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, I need to, I need to reassess the situation immediately. Um, and so, so yeah, the film can be very sad about what some of these characters are going through, even if they brought it on themselves, maybe especially um, it can be sad. It can be suspenseful while also often being absolutely hysterical. Um, <laughs> how, and, and it is, it really is the combination of those things that got, that put me in mind of Elmore Leonard. And I'm a big, like, I'm an Elmore Leonard fan. I I've read a lot of his books when his movies are, or, or TV shows are working, like they're really working because they can combine all of these different elements seamlessly. And the film manages to do that while also really being like, I felt like I was watching like a new generation of filmmaking, like just the way that it, you know, will do these cutaways and yet it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, watching an episode of family guy or something like that. Just the way, the, the way that these cutaways feel organic to who these characters are and the way they process uh, the, this, what this, what's happening in the story and what's happening with each other. Um, It's, it is just such a, I, 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 I feel like the film is just so celebratory of humanity and filmmaking itself and the inner and the, the intersection of the two. And some people would probably look at the movie and say like, well, it's kind of a trifle. Like when you're looking at something like power of the dog, which has like such a weight to it, how, how could, how could Zola ever wind up being your favorite movie of the year? And a lot of it just comes down to uh, such, such a, a, a love and engagement with humanity uh, and also just a film I have not stopped thinking about and advocating for uh, like this and Cyrano, the two movies I've found myself talking the most about, but this one has stayed with me even more because it's just so it's, it's just so exciting to watch. Yeah, I mean, you, you talked about like it seeming like a trifle compared to something like Power of the Dog, but I think there are 
people, there are Americans who would be much more moved by Zola, much more feel much more spoken to by Zola than by the power of the dog. And that's not a yeah. judgment on one group or right. the other. It's but it's um, Zola feels like a movie that is um, speaking to, not speaking down to, or speaking about, but actually speaking to uh, parts of America that we don't uh, see. Uh, as many movies about or that don't uh, see movies made with them in mind. Yeah. It's, it's this idea that I, that I often find very beautiful when it's done well sometimes and patronizing and condescending when it's not Um, the idea of like, like what you just said, it's like there are people whose stories are not being told or at least not told often, or they are often supporting characters in somebody else's story. Um, and that is to say that like they Hollywood and, and just maybe movies in general, just treat certain types of people as just disposable. And like, really, what can we learn from them? What can we glean from their story? But like everybody, in my opinion, everybody's story deserves to be told. Mm. And the story of Zola and the people that she encounters is just as quintessentially American in many ways yeah. uh, as, as anything else. And, uh, and you know, I've talked about all these other things that, that the film reminds me of, like David Mamet and, and Elmore Leonard. I'm also going to throw Robert Altman in there. Uh, as you know, Nashville is my, is my favorite movie. And I feel like Altman is also someone who just engages, sometimes in his case, judgmentally, but engages with humanity and sometimes tells the story of, of people that, uh, for one reason or another, uh, the rest of the world might see as a joke uh, or or undesirable or whatever it is. So I don't mean to, to talk about Zola only in terms of all of these other things because it is so uniquely itself. It gives me some of the same feeling as when I'm engaging with this other art that I have loved so much, but it is, it feels wrong to talk about it in comparison to anything else artistically. I'm fine to talk about the feeling the commonality of feeling, but, uh, but stylistically it is, it is in a class of its own for me. Um, and I cannot wait to see what Janisa Brava does. Yeah. I was going to say it's in a class of its own, but hopefully not for long. Exactly. Well, um, I think that's, uh, we did it. We talked about the entire year. We can find it. It's finally 2022 now. Indeed. Um, Thank God. Well, I guess you'll be talking about the Oscars next week. Oh yeah. (laughs) I forgot. Okay. Well, they don't snuck forget up to on record me. an episode about the Oscars. What's up? <laughs> um, uh, other than that, yeah, let's wrap it up because uh, we've been going too long. You can find uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com or you can find a review. You can find reviews of a bunch, a bunch of the movies we talked about today, um, but not all. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretension.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. My other podcast is called The One Where I Met Your Mother, which you can find where you find podcasts or find it at battleshipretension.com. It's where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends, an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week and compare and contrast. I don't know what we talked about this week. It's been too long. Uh, I don't even remember a time you weren't recording this episode. So, uh, Tyler, uh, you can find Tyler at... I do. Oh, it was <laughs> it was a scary time. The before times, I call it. You can find Tyler uh, on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Tyler, what else do you have to plug? Uh, over at More Than One Lesson, uh, you can listen to a new episode that I recorded about Matt Reeves' The Batman. So if you'd like to hear me talk about The Batman for about an hour, uh, you can uh, you can do that. And I 
I feel like there was another thing, but now I can't remember what it is. So, uh, oh, that was it. Um, I'm going to be at this year's uh, International Christian Film Festival happening in Orlando at the beginning of May. So uh, if you live in the Orlando area and you wanted to, to stop by, I'm going to have a table there and you can come and say hello. And, uh, you know, it's always fun, especially in that environment. It's always fun talking to uh, BP fans. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, uh, speaking of the BP fans, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 